Hello and welcome to Tip Manor Podcast. We're back again shortly after doing a quiz earlier this week. Um, John, how are you doing? Not too bad, but the days are starting to blur. I'm, I'm noticing a few bad habits, um, lack of new clothes creeping in, but yeah, not too bad. A- any fatigue from the quiz? No, no. Raring to go. Solid victory for myself. We outnumbered them, so um, it should Absolutely. have happened. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, we've got other regulars here. We've got Ben. Evening. You sound you sound fresh as a daisy. Beautiful microphone today. Uh, for now. <laughs> for now. <laughs> Who knows? Daleks, I'm sure, on the horizon. <laughs> uh, Jack, you're back in action. Yeah, still still getting on. Still reveling for in Sunday's victory. So it's all good. For sure. And Connor, you, you've just been getting yourself a fresh glass of water, so you're ready to go. I'm ready. I am ready. More than ready. Always ready. Okay, so we're all kind of just along for the ride today because we've got a very special guest with us, but we're continuing on with our BBC Radio Oxford specials, kind of working our way through the team. And today we've got Nathan Cooper with us. Hello, Nathan. Good evening. How are we? Very good. No one ever asked me how I am, Nathan. So thanks for that. You're welcome. These guys never <laughs> asked me. I'm great. I just had a toad in the hole, freshly made. Rock and oh, roll. Unbelievable. To be honest, I ate it far too quickly and I feel horrendous now. So I'm looking forward to kind of handing over to, for John to take more of a lead on this while I digest. <laughs> there we go. Anyway, uh, Jerome talked a bit about how um, kind of coronavirus had impacted people's roles and routines at Radio Oxford. I know you've got more going on than just stuff at Radio Oxford, but how has it kind of impacted your job specifically like day to day? Well, day to day, I mean, I'm not actually full time with the BBC. I work for a commercial radio station in Buckinghamshire. So I'm actually now working from home, little studio set up and trying to homeschool at the same time, which has been quite interesting. But it's it's just very, yeah. very strange. Not obviously, you know, seeing the, the guys from the BBC on a weekend meeting somewhere in North Oxfordshire and abandoning cars and trekking up north to see United play somewhere and obviously missing the football as we all are. <laughs> Yeah. How, how is your kind of work, workspace at home? Was it Have you kind of put yellow pages with a monitor on it and microphone not, on top of something? Not quite that bad, but pretty close at one point. It was a good thing there to get the spare room cleared out. It was the kind of the uh, the final thing I've got to clear the room out. There's boxes <laughs> of football programmes and bits and pieces scattered in there. So it was a good chance to clear it all out and make a decent space to work. And it, and it makes a big difference actually to the sanity to still be doing sort of most of the day yeah. of every day in the same sort of hours as well and trying to keep things with some sort of routine, because that's made a big difference for me and for my daughter. Yeah, for sure. I'm finding, like what John said, the only thing with that is that the days are just blending into one another, and you just don't know what day it is anymore. But there you go. Um, as this is your debut Tip Manor podcast appearance, uh, we have to uh, we have to kind of start by asking you about the, the kind of the beginnings. I guess where were you where were you brought up and where were you raised? Um, and actually, sorry, were you raised as an Oxford fan? Yeah, I mean, I'm an Oxfordshire boy through and through. Um, brought up in Longhamber and Encham and Freeland, so all around sort of West Oxfordshire. My brother was a Liverpool fan. We have uh, relations from Merseyside. My dad grew up an Arsenal fan. Um, his dad was a massive Arsenal fan. But we kind of, you know, fell into Oxford United. I just missed, if the truth be known, I did just miss the glory years. And my first season yeah. was our last season in the top flight. That's the first year I got a season ticket, me and my dad. Uh, the first two seats, the front row in the Osler Road, just where you walk through from the standing. So although I wasn't a London roader, it was a nice family time. 
out with the old man yeah. every week. And we sort of joined then and it went downhill pretty much that season onwards. And I felt for seasons and seasons like, this is not a good idea. What have I done to this football club? And, you know, I've been all the way from the, the Premier League as is now, right down to the, uh, the joys of the conference and thankfully back on the up again. Brilliant. And what was your first game, if you can remember? Yeah, first game was Liverpool at home. The season before we got a season ticket, my dad took me and my brother. And that game, that was stood in the Osler Road. United lost, I think, three. When I think the late Tommy Caton scored for Oxford that day. But that was the, the yeah. first game. But I remember going there and just being... It was the first game I'd been to. I was 11, 12 at that time. So sort of late to get into going to football. But just being in awe and, you know, walking into the Manor ground and... We all look back with fond memories and it wasn't always the best football stadium, but at that age, you know, the crowd and seeing players from Liverpool that I'd seen on TV and Oxford United, wow, this is a local team to me. And it was just from that moment onwards, I said to my dad, we've got to go again. And thanks to say, season ticket came along and, and there it stayed. Oh, brilliant. You mentioned those the road and it's, it's twigged a memory in me because I was listening to the, I think it was the Paul Moody um, interview on the official podcast that the club's been doing and he was laughing about the fact that Ozil Road is one of the only stands in the country where there's literally like five stands <laughs> along the side of that pitch it's like a garage and then a bigger garage and then a even bigger garage leading up to the the away end but well, that was the what stand that was that was the man of ground in a nutshell wasn't it sort of yeah. higgledy piggledy little bits here and there sort of built on as times success came and as they went through non-league little bits packed on here and there and if you ever went you know, under the beach road, into the dress room areas and some of the offices there, it was all little tiny, almost like a rabbit warren, little offices and little rooms <laughs> here and there. And it's just the most remarkable, such charismatic football ground, the like of which you just don't get anymore. I mean, yeah. that, that stand must have been closest to pitch level, I thought, and nearest, because I remember when I first went to the Manor, I was just amazed by how close the players were to the, to the, to the fans. You could almost reach out and grab them if you wanted to, but that stand must have been near, near pitch level, I would have thought. Yeah, very much. I mean, think about someone like Rosie when he played on the left-hand side. We'd be yeah. our seats were just off the halfway line. So if he was playing left side and going towards the London Road, he sometimes would backtrack to the left back position, but often. But the times he did, you'd be engaging with fans with him and be talking to the crowd and throwing the ball to you and all sorts. And it was, it was you were that close. And I think that's probably from going the Ozil Road standing. First of all, being that close to the action was what really drew me to it. That's you know, this is how close you can get to professional footballers. It was it was just magical for a for a schoolboy. Yeah. I can imagine Rosie chatting through a game, <laughs> definitely as well. Sort of suddenly switch on and be like, oh yeah, got to do something. All the time. <laughs> yeah. um, what about first player or manager who you'd kind of consider as an idol? Like, what, Who was the first player that caught your eye? Uh, Dean Saunders uh, in the top flat. I just thought, you know, this is a guy who scored not just goals, but some great goals. The goal against Brighton, he scored on the turn and lashing him from long range on the television for... For several years, that was a, a, a big goal. And he was a sort of player that yeah. he just went, yeah, what a what a great player. There are the players as well that as as the times went on. But I think this first sort of idol of mine at United would probably have been Dean Saunders. We were kind of abusing Dean on the last pod, weren't we? <laughs> we were. I think we were referencing back to when we played Wrexham. Um, I don't know if you remember, Nathan, in the FA Cup. Yep. And he it was on TV and he was um, commentating. And he just, obviously he had allegiances to to the Welsh side and therefore just tore into us completely the whole way through. But uh, difficult he was a good... as a Welshman, of course, as well, pretty difficult for him. Yeah. But, and sometimes, you know, your idols growing up when you get to meet people who hear about them are very different people. I think, you know, Jerome was talking about Mark Wright on the last podcast. He was a player who I'd obviously watched in the World Cup in 1990 as well. Mm. And he'd come back and I just thought when he got the job as a manager, 
I just thought, you know, this is this is a player who I grew up thinking was just a fantastic footballer. Yeah. I must have mentioned Liverpool as well. My brother, I thought this is this is a great great player. And then when I met him, it just was not what you hoped it would be. And again, met yeah. him since, and it was a very different kettle of fish. He was a, he was a charming guy, but as a manager at the time, it just sort of really burst a bubble. And that can happen. You know, you talk about. Dean Saunders perhaps not enjoying his commentary against United. Sometimes it's that worst thing to meet your heroes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, right, I do far too much talking on this podcast. So for once, I'm going to let someone else <laughs> do do a bit. So John, I guess I can hand over to you for a bit. Well, as you um, very delightfully explained the, the reason for uh, said handover in, in the intro, so you, you let your um, digesting <laughs> go down. But we'll all, um, yeah, just kind of have a bit of a chat through. But but Nathan, this, this section... Um, I suppose we call it getting to know you a bit more and talking about your career. We can't really call it sort of Mini Cooper or else we'll sound like we're talking about cars or something. <laughs> um, but that's my daughter's on radio this... name, by the way, Mini Cooper, when she's on. We call her Mini Cooper, so that's very confusing. Uh, okay. Is she, oh. is, she a, is she an aspiring commentator? Has she been on a, a commentator or has she been on air this week as part of um, work uh, experience or home She's school? on air all the time at the moment when I'm working from home. We're doing a quiz each day on the radio station in Buckinghamshire. Workforce. She's done lots of things in the past for us. So, yeah, she's um, useful to have around because she's cheap as well, which is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, let's let's gloss over that uh, <laughs> child labour um, element. Um, so, obviously, on this pod, as, as you have hopefully listened to before, we, um, we have a crack research department, and they've been in action for this section of the, um, of the pod. Oh, no. And they've discovered that you used to work, or it might be one of your first jobs in radio, in a radio yeah. station based in the Channel Tunnel. This is absolutely now, right. Yep. So I went... Now, <laughs> now that's got... I mean, I'll just leave that one to you to explain. Um, that sounds yeah. perfectly normal. Yeah, it's 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 not great. <laughs> I'd been working at um, Fox FM, which was the commercial station in Oxford, many, many years ago. Yeah. And the, the type was sort of put to me by the management there is I was doing lots of sports stuff, a lot of sport um, reports from United, et cetera, and bits and pieces behind the scenes. But it was put to me, if you want to be a presenter, you need to go and do some shifts elsewhere, you know, a smaller station, however you want to describe it. And um, they, he knew somebody who worked in this radio station, which is no longer in existence. I can't imagine why. It was um, <laughs> studios for which were in a little goldfish bowl in the back of the main a control room for the trains for the wow. channel tunnel and our job was to sit there in between records and pre-recorded information packages about you know driving on different sides of the road etc was basically to announce the train times it was a glorified train announcer albeit on a <laughs> fm radio station that if you were driving down towards the channel tunnel or the, the ports of dover and folks then you could tune in and get a, the most bizarre range of music i mean literally from classical music through to the hits of the day as they were at that time in the, in the sort of mid nineties. And it was very strange. It's 10 hour night shifts and eight hour day shifts. And I combined all of that with come back for United games as well. I worked out very early. If I could do two night shifts, Sunday, Monday, I think it was, um, then do breakfast on Tuesday and Wednesday on a four day week. I was home on the, on the Wednesday night with the rest of the week at home and friends and then football on the Saturday. And if it was a midweek game, just work around that. But it was, um, wow. yeah, it was good to do. It was interesting times, but it was also deathly dull. I can't lie to you. I'd love to say it was fantastic, but um, <laughs> it was a little bit dull. It's, it was kind of where we thought you might end up. I mean, you didn't have to speak French or anything like that and do, do both was, or a bit of diplomacy the, in action. Yeah, there was the option to do links in French. There was also a pre-recorded option with a very nice French lady um, who I got to know quite well down there. So I always used to just use her pre-recorded bits as opposed to attempting the uh, en français myself. <laughs> Fair enough. So... 
you then did you then move on back to Fox FM or did you go go on to Mix? Yeah, which you're on now. Yeah, straight to Mix ninety six from there, and that was nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, ninety seven when I joined Mix. I'm still there now, um, but that was yeah, that was the move straight into the station here, and then oh yeah, every shift under the sun since then at Mix. I started off evenings, and I went to drive time, breakfast, mornings, breakfast again, and I'm back on mornings now which is the best show to work around United. Uh, it's less holiday to take to go to the games, of course, because you can often finish in time to get away to uh, some godforsaken place on a Tuesday night. Although, as Jerome said, again, you know, when we're coming back from someone on a Tuesday night now, we're never going to say again, this is terrible. We now want to do a Tuesday night somewhere, anywhere we do at the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, that was 1997. I think after, we're all talking about what's going to be the new normal after this crash. I think after a couple of years, going to Fleetwood and Barrow and Southend will... Will fall back into that. What it like to be? I can't wait. Back in <laughs> back in the day, I was fine. You said Fleetwood, but again, for the same reasons you won't explain. <laughs> that's just one ground. That oh no, move on, move on. Yeah, so I think sorry, even, if you... oh, sorry. I think even when uh, when the football's back, I think even I'll be making some more flights over. I think because uh, we're all we're all bloody crying out for it, aren't we? <laughs> You're supposed to be yeah. swimming over, as we've said many times, and you oh, get to yeah. throw on. Um, <laughs> so, 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 sorry. So, how did so BBC Oxford then? How did that come about in relation to mix? Was that sort of after that, or is that all sort of concurrently? How did that come about? Yeah, that's to sort of move I, into. Yeah, when I came back, um, obviously from being in Folkestone, I was still doing a bit for Fox FM, and by this point, I was also involved in you know, doing the PA and sort of being around the press box uh, at the Manor Ground, so you get to know people. And it was summer of 2000, I had a chat with Jerome and he was telling me about the various changes that the BBC were going through at the time and everything else. And the, yeah, you mentioned the, it. Yeah, the Thames Valley stuff as well. And there was, you know, just almost by chance, there was a chance to, to go and, and join the commentary team there. So I joined them in, uh, yeah, 2000. It was the first game was away at Port Vale, the first game for BBC Oxford. So that was uh, 2000, so the start of that season. And I think Steve Anthropus, that ended up playing at centre-half. It was that bad an afternoon. I had a free transfer to BBC Oxford in the first game. It was a 3-0 defeat at Port Vale. Anthropus <laughs> is laying on his backside as the Port Vale guy runs away to score the third. And I thought, this is a, this is a, this is a great start, isn't it? Wow. Had you done any commentary before that? And like how was that like a live interview of sorts? I'd only done uh, honestly a little bit, not a great deal. Done a bit of club call, which again I think Jerome explained when he was on before. But for those that you know, missed it anyway, club call was a telephone service, and you would ring up this premium rate number and pay sort of a pound, pound fifty, uh, to listen to the news from from the football club, and all the clubs had them. So you had the choice of teletext, your local paper, club call, and a bit of your local radio when there were you know stuff about your football club on there. So I'd done a few mm. commentaries for that. One of those actually was Jerome was doing, he did it before me and he was doing a game one night. And I think he might've been doing two radio stations and a club call at the same time because you used to do those things to get the money in those days, to get the work, you could do it. And I ended up saying, can I help? In his ear while he was talking, he was just, he just gave me the phone and walked off. I just sort of commentated <laughs> and he came back. But <laughs> but yeah, so that's, I'd done a couple of those, but not too many. Um, and it probably showed then, and maybe it still shows now from time to time, but it was certainly a bit of a baptism of fire to go into almost like the full-time commentaries. I'm still thinking about Steve Anthrobus from your uh, last <laughs> story. Luminell, he was, um, you know, he made TNS Solutions famous for me, especially with um, <laughs> Jeff Stelling's comment about that as well. But um, I mean, did you, have you ever been tempted to sort of go, try and go into the 
sort of sports broadcasting full time because it sort of seems to be a natural fit for you obviously we all love your commentary and, and many others do or is it have you always liked the sort of all roundness of having another option on the, the cards the nice thing about commercial radio is we do so much more than just go on air there's elements of you know writing scripts and doing bits and pieces behind the behind the scenes as well and it's becoming more of a multimedia thing as well now with bits of videos and bits and pieces and in terms of you know, if I could do football just full-time commentary, then then maybe. But there's also, and I know that people, I know people that do it for for Sky and other organisations as well. And the money, you know, is, is a lot better than than perhaps we're going to get. But it's not about that. It's yeah. about doing something you enjoy as a hobby. And I don't know if I want to go and just you know pick out a random club. If say Watford are in the Championship, and you because that be sort of within my patch. I often do it in terms of you know where you're based. Sure. Or a Watford or a Wickham or a Luton, would that excite me? I'd enjoy the game, without a doubt, because it's football. But I don't know if I've quite got the, you know, doing it on yeah. Oxford United is fantastic because you're getting to watch the team that you love, and in, and you do something you enjoy. And it, for me, I say it is a hobby. I have a full time job which I enjoy, and on Saturday or Tuesday we get in the car with Jerome and Nick and Dave from the Oxford Mail and Selfie, um, off we go, and it becomes a becomes a lads' night out. For me, it's like the pub on a Friday night. It's not something I get to do. <laughs> but when we get in the car, and you can imagine coming back in those late nights, it can sometimes get a little bit, you know, cabin fever might set in, but it's just good fun. And the whole experience, the whole sort of match day experience, if you like, is, is brilliant. You're not going to get that going on your own to a game that you don't really care too much about. And whilst with those, to be fair, I see a lot of the guys who do some of the national stuff, they rock up at maybe half past two, if you're lucky on the whistle, you leave. Some of them have to stay around for an interview. They still, if somebody else and off they go, perhaps. But you can leave by 20 past half past five. We're still in the ground at six, quarter past six from away games. And you sometimes think, oh, yeah, I could have hurt more and left by now. And you think, yeah, but it wouldn't be Oxford United. I wouldn't enjoy it as much. So it's a long way to answer to saying probably no. <laughs> and I suppose the quality of what you get from your interviews and your commentary is, is generally better than if you're rocking up to a generic game where you can't know as much of the background or much of the maybe the narrative that's built up through the week yeah that's and an so interesting you... one sorry yeah because i think sometimes with that you you might know something that you can't necessarily you know reveal at that point or you're holding something back or you've heard something that may or not be the case and you know what united is like with off the you know behind the scenes bits and pieces there's always something isn't there that's, that's bubbling under we're gonna ask and you about that later yeah <laughs> well, sometimes it, it's it's good not to know and I think yeah. particularly with the commentary, yeah. if you, you can almost, I think that'd be the one good thing almost, I think, because you're coming at it with a blank canvas and it still remains what you see. And whilst, you know, we'll do that as much as we can, sometimes if you know a player is carrying a knock or you know about a particular situation, that can be in the back of your mind. At least if you don't know, it can't affect what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. Not that that happens, you know, all the time, but to have a blank canvas in Thailand. I've done, I have done a couple of other games. I did a Wembley playoff many years ago, Blackpool Yeovil. Uh, for another radio station. And that was a perfectly enjoyable game, actually. Obviously, Wembley got into it a little bit because you get into the game as it starts to go. But as I say, and that was just a completely blank canvas. So that, that would be quite nice sometimes. Do you mean that you sometimes pick stuff up from behind the scenes, like, like you mentioned about an injury, but you have to hold that back from your commentary because you've got it from... Uh, so it's not sort of officially out there. Is that is that what you meant? or? Yeah, I mean... It's a seldom thing, but there's often you know, there might be a, a personal situation with a player, or you sure. may know you may know full well that a player's only got an hour in them, 
but you're not going to put that out at that stage. And Carl Robinson's very good. I know, sorry, KR, as we should call him on this program. <laughs> KR's very good at giving the information before the game, but that's not always the case with some managers. And, and you know, sometimes you might know that a player's, in some case, you know, it's a player's last game for the club. And not a game, that's a, a seldom thing. Or you, you might just have known as the Chris Wilder day when he left. You know, that rumblings around. We had a good idea that that might be his last game and it was not something that you necessarily want to want to talk about during the comments you'll bring into it but you also you've got one eye on what's happening there so not saying you're not focused but certainly on a situation like that there's always that what's happening there what's happening over in the in the director's box what's everybody else doing what do they know because everyone's trying to make sure they've got that story for themselves as well so as you must have seen a player probably perhaps not giving their all or, or playing it safe knowing that he was leaving and he's not taking a chance to get injured and thought, I know exactly what you're doing, but I can't actually say yeah, it. Not even so much not giving their all, but you sometimes just know, or for, you know, sometimes you're told, you know, so-and-so has been up all night and it's, it's not necessarily, you've got to put it out there, but you just know. And if they're not having the best of games, that might be the reason. But again, it might not be the reason. They might be having a bad game full stop. So you don't want to start chucking excuses on the player's behalf. And, because some of them will go, no, I generally was just, was just poor today. Yes, I've had a bad night with a little one or whatever, but yeah, I was just bad today. Where others will will bring it up after the game, but sometimes it's not. You don't bring up a player's personal life unless it's offered out later. If that makes sense. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think as as fans, we often might hammer certain calls, like in the lineup or certain performances, and you always want to try and bring yourself back and think, hang on a minute, there might be something you don't know. And in some ways, you can bring that out later on after the game but at times you can't and you have to sit there I assume with people going well yeah if you only knew that that was happening you wouldn't be hammering the reason that decision has been made but that's always the thing I suppose as fans we don't we're not able to to talk about it's one of the things that very early on actually when I was doing the Fox of M stuff is almost that that difference between fan and reporter sometimes as well and almost You've net down the head there. You're talking about, you know, you, you slag a player off sometimes, and I've done it from the terraces myself, sometimes without knowing the full story. I remember seeing, I think United, I think it was Birmingham we'd lost that, and I hadn't been doing Fox of M very long, and that wasn't commentaries, that was just reports. Often I was just there to carry the bags, but I saw the United players afterwards, and I won't name any names, but two or three of them were in the bar, and they were laughing and joking, and we'd lost. And I was in a really foul mood, because you do what you, you lose, you know, you have bad mood. And like, how how yeah. can players be laughing? and enjoying themselves but you sort of soon you have to come to realize and we're very bad as fans of this and you've mentioned it you don't always know what a player is going through also you know how a player reacts and we all react different way in different things and some players don't like football they yeah. can play football and that's it and they can happily go home after the game and it not bother them and we might go as fans that's not right well no that's also their job and we all go to work or college or anything else and we have a bad day sometimes or something's in our mind, a personal issue or something. Again, KR is very good at some of the mental stuff right now. The work they're doing with the mental health thing is superb. But players have the same problems that we have. And I don't care if you earn 50 quid, 500 quid or five grand a week. Problems away from the field are still problems. Money can't solve health issues, family issues, etc. And I think sometimes we're very quick to, to jump on players, whether we know, even in reporters, what the situation is or not. Um, I think Aaron Martin was when you got a lot of stick. There was obviously something going behind the scenes there. He, yeah. he didn't get a lot of slack for whatever was happening. It was obviously affecting. I say that. I assume it was affecting him. That's just a, an example. But I do think that we, we have to look at players sometimes and appreciate they are only human beings. 
as I say, in the case of the Birmingham game, I don't know if those Oxford players knew some Birmingham players there, if that was their way of getting the loss out of their system. Maybe they didn't care. I don't know. But there's always that something in the back of your mind that you've got a bit careful with, with people, especially you know the way the world is now, that it's not always as black and white, I don't think, as just having a bad game and you're not being good enough. There are things that go on in people's lives that must make playing football very, very difficult. And maybe that's what sets the very best players apart. The players at the top level that shut everything out. And you look at someone like, I guess, Jamie Carragher was a pretty average player, but played a long time at the top level just by being very, very consistent. Beckham, different class player, stick he got you know, after the, yeah. the sending off, but to keep coming back. And some players might have crumbled into that. And I think that is, you know, mental health in football is... It's such a big, big thing. As I say, sometimes you just don't really know how players are being affected away from the field. Are there any players that you you were aware of over the years that just the ones that purely didn't like football that much? So like um, Asu Okoto is a famous example of one who says, I just wasn't that into football. So not anyone that had any sort of mental challenges or or personal challenges, but any ones that you were aware of that you're like, he's just not that into football, but he gives his all in any way. I mean, any ones that sort of spring to mind that gave that impression? Awful now, sorry, I can't remember anybody that comes into that. There's a few at United, you, you often wonder, you know, does it, are they that bothered? There's so, you saw after the games, there are those that are on the phones looking at the table, there are those that come to interview that yeah. know exactly where they are, and, and there are those that don't. Um, I can't, any of the current squad, I can't think really offhand. It'll probably come to me the other night, and I'll go, ah, oh, I know who it was I was speaking to, didn't really like football. But there are there are certainly a few that, that just play the game and don't, you know, or necessarily give that attitude of being overly concerned about what anybody else is doing it's you know i just enjoy playing football and i can do it and and why not there's always the players that get hammered for being a bit more languid in style on the pitch you know not sort of charging around like idiots that people hammer at times and you go hang on a minute <laughs> he's being selective <laughs> just um just ease up um yeah. gonna go say, on, like danny borman everyone loved didn't they danny borman the way he charged around the field and there was you know i think to this day there was the wrong decision to let him go, and everyone probably accepts that. But there was also, you speak to people behind the scenes, this is not to pick on Danny Bullman, there are plenty of players like it. And someone said to me once, it's great, the fans love the fact he's just charged 50 yards into the corner, closed a clearance down, it's gone for a throw-in. He said, but actually, he should have held his position, because the winger, <laughs> yeah. the winger, the winger should have been in there, and if he's not closed that down, if he's a split second late there, that ball's in the centre midfield, and look at the, the gap beyond that. And we can all get sucked in sometimes. That's just a you know, real minor example of a player that races around 100 miles an hour. But sometimes if you're going to do that, has anybody filled in for you? And I dare say at that time, in the conference, of many players filling in for Bournemouth because they probably weren't that technically good enough to do that. And it can leave big gaps. So whilst we all applaud that industry, the way football's played now is such a technical game. It's not always in the best interest of everybody else to do that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, we're going to move on to sort of commentary and, and match day, but I our research department also dug up a quote which was associated with yourself. I don't think it's you saying it, but it's in with oh, no. regard to, your, to you and commentary. And um, this is apparently during a charity game at Aylesbury United. A former England player said, you try hard, but you're not very good, are you? So perhaps you should stick to talking about it. We were just wondering if you could name and shame that player. Absolutely. I don't mind being rinsed by Luther Blissett. Luther I mean, Blissett, are, wow. There are worse players, aren't there, to be um, told that by an England player. Yeah, briefly, it was a charity game yeah, at Aylesbury United. Do you remember the um, the Dream Team soccer series that was on yes. uh, Sky? Yes. Yeah, they were, they were supposed to come and play a celebrity game. And they'd come to us to promote it on the radio station. And I'd been on them the whole time. I said, can I can I play? And they were going, oh, look, we've got a lot of players coming. You know, we've got this so-and-so. And I said, oh, all right. So I get one day. 
and there's Luther Bliss, a couple of others. Ben Shepherd uh, was one of those playing. I talked to Luther Bliss and I said to him, oh, you know, I'm Nathan. He said, oh, yeah, we spoke. I said, yeah. He said, oh, he said, have you got your boots? And I had a pair that Rosie had given me um, the previous week. Because mine had had. And I said to Rosie, just in case you've got a spare pair. He said, I've got a pair you can have. I said, I haven't got a movie. No. He said, you've got enough play. He said, well, do you live close? I said, literally across the road. He said, go and get your boots. The dream team lot are stuck on the motorway. It's been a crash. You're starting. <laughs> no, this wasn't the deal. The deal was a little cameo not to start. So I got changed and there was MC Harvey, I think on our team, Steve Brookstein, a guy who won the X Factor. He was on it as well. So we go out for the kick up and Harvey sends me a really easy pass. And that's the time I discovered without my glasses, I could not see a sodding thing. Not a thing. <laughs> so I mis I miscontrolled this five yard pass completely and you could just see them all going. Who is this idiot? Oh, no. <laughs> so we start, I play on the right wing. And after five, ten minutes, I was blowing completely. And I said to this guy who was playing right back, who I believe was someone from Coronation Street. I didn't know who he was. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know who I was. It was fine. Uh, I said, look, you go further forward, and I'm going to go in at right back. He said, okay. And I thought, this would be a bit of an easier gig here. I'd give the ball. He's quite quick. So it turns out that I'm trying to play offside, and so is Luther Blissett, because his legs are gone, and so have mine. Two others in the back line going deep, and we were getting absolutely hammered. So half time, I sort of said, "Look, we've got to sort this out, guys." Two of us playing offside, and that's when Blissett just he went, looked at him, he said, "You talk a good game, you try hard, but you're just not very good, are you?" And I was like, "No." He said, "Right." Neither team talked to me. I was like, "Okay." And at that point, MC Harvey started smacking Steve Brookstone in the face, and it all kicked off. And I thought, "Well, I just sit in the corner and be quiet now." So you're joking? No, no. Just a very weird celebrity death match in the dressing rooms of Aylesbury United. That was. <laughs> and we lost. Well, I, I got cramp. It's clearly stuck, it's clearly stuck with you very well. That was, you know, a lot of it's detail. A, I think it's the last time I played. That's why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose moving on to something you're obviously a lot more successful at in terms of commentary. I mean, are we are we correcting this is your twentieth season commentating for Oxford? With yeah, with BBC, I joined in two thousand, and I'd been obviously covering it with Fox um, for time before that. You're going to ask, do you want the numbers? Because I have worked them out for you now. Because I thought you might ask. Well, it's, yeah, we yeah. we think we've got the numbers. So, what have um, you got them? We I think. think well, we've been stalking your Twitter account, so we think <laughs> it was a tweet of eight hundred and sixty-four consecutive games. So we must think it's over nine hundred now. I've got over nine hundred. I've got the exact yeah, but it's over nine hundred, not five or nine hundred. Yeah. That's consecutive I mean, games. There's obviously games. Consecutive? That's home and away, consecutive league and cup. Yeah, that's sad, isn't it? No. That's un yeah. unbelievable. Whoa. And obviously games <laughs> before that, because that was 2003 was the last game I missed. So there were some games before that as well. So. And it's over, just... seven, over 700 games on the PA as well. Yeah, well, we're saying we're going to touch on the PA. I mean, sort of, Match day preparation and routine, has it been the same over the years? Or how do you, I mean, Jerome touched a bit about sort of how Google has kind of changed the world from that front. But how do you as a com as more of a, I suppose, commentator prep for the games beyond listening to our preview, obviously, which we always get, <laughs> which we obviously get right all the time. But do you do the sort of reams of notes like you see sort of Jonathan Pierce doing? Or do you, are you sort of, how do you, how does it go for you? Yeah, you have, you have a couple of pages usually that you put together. You know, during the week, you know, we get a lot of the stuff sent to us. There's some stat packs and bits and pieces, not the sort of extreme that you're going to get if you're doing a match of the day, for example. They, you know, Sky, they're going to get a massive stat pack, but we get, you know, bits and pieces. And again, you have a quick a quick look around. And when you get there, it's often quite good to just have a little watch the 
a lot of time watching the kick up, you know, the warm up rather, looking at individual players and the little set piece routines that they go to. And again, from United's point of view, you like to think you know a fair bit, but you're still looking out for birthdays and goals scored and that sort of thing. But it is it is easier. I think Jerome touched on that. It's a lot easier than it was because of you know, you've got the the internet and even on the when you know we get to the game, there's a player in the opposition squad that well perhaps wasn't recognised from the week, or they've got you know a young lad who's come in within a couple of minutes. You can find that information out you know very very quickly. So it's it's not as time consuming as it probably once was in terms of you know making note after note. And now you can have it on a tablet or on your phone as well, so you haven't got the physical notes you know blowing away when the gale comes in over that fence at the Sam Stadium. <laughs> That's just Nick's notes that go flying usually. Yeah. <laughs> are, you, are you are you a natural stats person? There's a bit of a divide on this pod. So James loves his stats, but these oh, yes. are, me and Connor probably less so, and yeah. and, and Ben and Jack are probably somewhere in the middle maybe. And um, but then these days there are a lot more stats available. You've got XG and all that sort of thing. Mm. Do you find them in your commentary? They you use them a lot and you like them, or do you sort of use them as you feel that there's a need for some stats? I find some of it a bit confusing, some of the XG stuff and all that. I'm not really sure what, what that adds to something to a commentary. The trouble yeah. I've got with stats now, and I, and I like a little stat here and there, some obscure ones are quite like, but this is this is no word of a lie. I just find remembering stuff a lot harder now. And if I don't get it in the notes in the preview to the game, and I don't know if that is just purely an age thing or, or what it is now, <laughs> I just don't remember things as well as I used to. You know, as a schoolboy, you could go through and you do all the appearances from the last season, top of your head and all the goals. Now I've got to make sure it is... It is there, but some of those sort of particularly um, complex stats, do they add much to the commentary? Personally, I'm not so sure they do, but little little things, you know, um, some of the stuff when you find out people, Matty Taylor and the Josh Ruffles thing, when, the, you know, Taylor was his PE teacher, well, those sort of things. That's an interesting human side as well that makes, yeah. I think, more sense than perhaps the computer says we might get four goals split between two teams this afternoon. See, James, nobody cares what number of corners. <laughs> it's, um... Well, no, you know, you don't score from corners, so they're irrelevant, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you think your sort of commentary style for for games has evolved since you started? And um, just to take one example of, of the partnerships, perhaps you could talk about you and you and Nick. Um, has that developed and how, how does that partnership work? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the commentary, I'd hope they've developed and, and hopefully got a bit better from that sort of first game back in 2000 and Steve Anthemus on his backside. But that just comes with, with doing it week by week and and learning when you haven't got it. There's a, a real temptation with football commentary just to name every player when they touch the ball. And that can just become a list of names yeah. that in the end it's, well, hang on, it, it, what's actually happened? People want to know where the ball is who's got the ball, not necessarily a player, but the team, you know, and, and what's going on. You can become bogged down with a, you know, Be- Beecham to Alan, Allen to Lewis, Lewis to Smith, Smith to Moody. Sure. If it's if it's not describing where the ball is, and you sort of, you learn that, and people tell you, but it's not until you've done it time and time again that you start to work out that rhythm for yourself. And the danger of that is, of course, if it's quick passing, you're going 100 miles an hour. And if you're only listening, and you know, as if you listen to commentary yourself, voices go up or down and get a bit quicker sometimes when there's something going on. But if you're doing it on five-yard passes in your own half, but you're going, you know, Smith, Lewis, bum, 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 listeners are going, oh, nothing's actually happening. So that's quite a, you've got to get over that quite early, learning to just use your voice in the right tones, that makes sense, and the, the, the yeah. light and shade of the, of the commentary. So it's not always just about picking out, you know, who's got the ball, it's what else is going on that adds to that particular moment. So you know, so what was what was Jerome's one again? 
Oxford are stretched was the one he felt guilty of using too much, I think. Mine was, I remember him saying. Mine was to be honest, a few years ago, apparently got into the habit of that, and you don't know you're doing it either. And um, two or three people told me that, so you'd, you'd be honest all the time. Oh, am I? Okay. And then, of course, you say it in commentary, and you go, oh, Christ, I've said it. Then you say it again, because now it's in the head, and you can't, and you can't shift it. <laughs> yeah. uh, in terms of partnerships, yeah, I mean, there was two or three people who were commentating with me when I, well, I say with me at the BBC when I first joined. I was commentating with them because they were the full-time employees. So I had two or three different people initially, and it, it does take you a while to build up a relationship with people. But I think now myself and Nick and Joe have worked together for such a long time, 20 years, obviously, as of, yeah. as of three. And Rosie, when he's there as a four, and obviously Selfie comes in too, and you have to you get to know people. And, and where they're going to be. And we just know with Nick, you let him go. And then you talk when you get a chance. But Nick's so he, great, isn't he? I mean, Nick is, he's not only, the, he's, he's been so good to me from when I first joined United and obviously somebody else coming in to uh, not vie with him for a job, but there's somebody else suddenly on, on the team and he's never been anything but helpful to me. And he's, he and Jerome, of course, have just been, you know, nothing but good to me on and on and off the field, it's like a player now, but you know, both on air and off air, because they're both very, very good mates as well. I mean, we'll we're hoping to have him do one of these in the in the near future. So I guess in some way, I have the um, the right of reply, and you won't. But does, do you have any favourite sort of Nick moments or times when you have to give him a subtle kick um, that you'd we be care- <laughs> you willing to risk? <laughs> subtle kicks. There's, there's been a few, um, but I tell you that you were talking about it actually, the Tunbridge Angels game. Yes, and I know yeah. you asked Jerome how we were feeling. I can tell you how we were feeling. I was feeling bloody awful because <laughs> Jerome's not there. And anytime Jerome doesn't do a game, in the back of your mind, you're always thinking there's that bit of extra pressure. People go, well, of course, if Jerome was there, and I'm thinking, I'm going to get that. If Jerome was there, be on air. We wouldn't be. It, the kit didn't work in the stand. And obviously, we end up, as you well know, uh, sat on that car behind the, um, behind the goal. And the Tunbridge Angels chairman, he um, got his desk out of his office so we could use it as like a ladder to get onto the car and put our feet on it was a lovely lovely fella and obviously billy turley turned up and when he got off the car it was a it was a peugeot there was a billy surly sized bum um, <laughs> dent in the roof of that peugeot but the point was and i know that henry's one of your good friends and he henry moran yeah he was with us that night and nick being nick blessing we're packing down he said oh we've, we've done well we've got there in the end well done nathan and blah blah and we, were, we were quite happy to have got a commentary on the air under the circumstances not with the result obviously but he's he gave the car keys to henry. He said, henry go and get the car and i don't think henry was old enough to be on the bbc insurance and there was some sort of discussion <laughs> nick said you'll be all right go and get the car and henry drove this thing around the or went to the other side of the pitch and back again to get some more kit in this bbc car and he looked a bit a bit petrified and he said he'll be all right don't worry but that's just um, that's just Nick being Nick. But Henry's face was quite a picture when Nick gave him the key. He said, off you go. Go on. I don't think I can. You'll be fine. And that was just sort of Nick saying, off you go. So, Do, do you have to sort of with Nick, I mean, say we also in good humour kind of wind him back when he's, because he goes, you know, he can go and it's fantastic to hear and you can hear his passion and he's, he's really bringing the moments live. Do you have to eventually sort of start to sort of, you know, pull on his coat slightly or do you just think, he's going to nail this and I'll just sit back and uh, take this moment. No, the first, you let him go because that is Nick, isn't it? Nick is yeah. fantastic. And actually, a little story about Nick with another quick one was the fact that he can talk forever was just fantastic <laughs> because we had a game at Rotherham. First game in the season against Rotherham. Chris Wilder been in charge. We got beat uh, up at the Athletic Stadium many years ago. And... Um, I hated that place. Oh, it was soulless. Don it? Valley or whatever it was. That was yeah, it. God. I needed a pee to put it politely. 
since about 10 minutes into the first half. And Jerome missed that game. So I was presenting the programme as well. So there's no chance to get away. And about 20 past five, we had a quick pre-recorded piece. And I dashed off the back of the stand. Toilets are all closed. Press room's been closed for hours. I, got, I said to Nick, I've got to find a toilet. Can you just, you know, talk for a second? He said, yeah, of course. So we came off the back of this piece of audio. And I said something, you know, United have lost. Um, you know, Nick's not been the best start, but, you know, obviously things to look out for. And I disappeared. And I don't know how long I was gone for because, you know, when you take the seal off, the floodgates opened and I just <laughs> I just couldn't stop. And when I finally got back several minutes later, Nick was still talking. I didn't even know I'd gone. And it was just, that's that's just Nick though. You just say, Nick, can you fill some time? Or, you know, can you see us through something? And you just let him go. And, you know, he's got so much experience, so much passion for Oxford United as well to call upon. That he, it's, he's a great person to turn to in a crisis like that. You want some time to fill, you turn to Nick. We haven't really touched on it, actually, but we, we asked Jerome this, but that kind of detachment of fan to commentator, did it just kind of, I think in Jerome's case, it was quite like just an organic thing that he didn't really think about. Was it a similar thing to you or have there been times where that fan, I, I think the reason why you guys are so great as commentators for us for us lot is because you have that passion, all of you. Mm. You are under the hood Oxford fans, which means that does every now and then come out in the commentary because you hear the passion um and so has there been a time where you've ever kind of stepped over the line or on reflection you've been like ah i was kind of talking or reacting as a fan there or have you managed to maintain that kind of professional edge throughout i don't think there's been too many of those moments actually um i think saying earlier on when i saw those players sort of happy after a game that was an early one for me to go you have to you know almost remove yourself sometimes as a as a fan and from the emotion. And of course, there's, there's big gains when you know you're getting a little bit carried away. I, would, I can't recall too many occasions. There are times I chucked a microphone down somewhere. I remember where that was. That was at the referee. That wasn't so much at United. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes, almost within the frustration, you get some of your better, not better commentaries, yeah. but sometimes yeah. you, you, I think you pick your words a bit more carefully and you can almost be a little bit more subjective, not the right word. But you, you look at the situation and you try and perhaps because inside you know you're going to be angry about it you can almost temper yourself a little bit more and it brings out sometimes better better moments better commentaries or better lines because you know that you're on you're on that edge of you know getting back on the terraces again Connor I wonder how you'd fare with that kind of language barrier (laughs) yeah (laughs) do you know what actually it's it's really funny because when I was a kid um I really wanted to be a football commentator. That was honestly one of, that was my thing. I didn't want to be a football player. I wasn't bothered about that. Commentary was something that I absolutely loved. And I, I kind of tried to get into it when I was younger, but it didn't really work out. And I certainly haven't gotten, gone down that route now. So listening to, to obviously when Jerome was on and also Nathan, for me, I find it absolutely fascinating to see uh, how your careers are developed and that sort of thing. But yeah, I think now certainly I wouldn't stand a chance wouldn't stand a chance. I think the no. the the language the language would would just it would just overtake everything because again it's a, you know football's so emotive and it gets you in that way and I think it's an absolute credit for so many commentators that you can remain so almost detached even though you're so involved with it. It's, it's almost it, well, it's a proper talent, isn't it, to have that? Well, yeah, I hope so. Thank you. I think listen back to the um, the conference semi final goal sometimes on YouTube. And I was, I think I was getting excited in those. They weren't, they weren't my best. I still loved them. They weren't the best commentary, but there was a bit of emotion in that because I just knew that was they were two massive goals 
Constable and Green against Russian and Diamonds. Yeah. And well, there's a bit of I, bit of fan coming out in those, I think. Seamlessly, you've you've picked up on something we were going to mention, <laughs> actually, um, about that sort of United and Dreamland line that you came out with. Are there mm. any others that you've particularly sort of said in previous conversations you thought that was really capture the moment or I'm really pleased with that or I'm going to sort of tell my daughter about that for, for years to come? I think I um I enjoyed the Shea Dunkley Wickham guy. I think Jerome yeah. mentioned the, the power of three when he was talking about his famous back on the coupe and it was also, you know, back where they belong back in the Football League. And yeah. this was not... And again, you I think you talk to Jerome about, you, do you sometimes write these things down? You, you have an idea sometimes if so-and-so scores, it's a birth or it's a certain goal or there might be an obvious line that you want to get out. That goal just—it literally just came, and I think I said, uh, "The big man, the big goal, and the big occasion." And it—that's all he needed to say. Yeah, the nice. place is going wild. Dunkley scored a, a brilliant, brilliant header, and it's such a big goal, wasn't it? And the Wiccan game was just was so such an occasion. That's probably of all the ones. Um, that's the one that comes straight away. Yeah, big man, big goal, big occasion. Have you found any in the reverse? I.e., when it's been a particularly uh, desperate situation or a kind of a bad goals gone in or a big moment's gone the other way for Oxford that you find those lines come out or is it just more you sort of let the occasion filter through to people well again my other my other sort of favorite most memorable but not in a good way line the complete opposite of the Dunkley one was was John Ashton at Stockport uh, the season United fell out of the Football League and it was very late in the game and the Stockport players gone to the penalty area and Ashton was sort of with him but jockeying a little bit and I think I said in the commentary, don't foul him, don't foul him, don't foul him. <laughs> He's fouled him. And that was the that was the penalty. United lost that game and they could have stayed up at the point there. It was, I think yeah. it was that sort of that close. And so whilst it's not a fantastic moment in terms of celebrating, it was one of those ones you could, I could see it from where I was sat. So, so he's going he's to foul him. <laughs> and that's where the sort of fan commentator thing, you're thinking, don't effing foul him, don't be a prat. No, don't foul him, don't foul him, don't foul him. He's fouled him. <laughs> exactly it's brilliant because it's what we say in the terraces yeah, you'll be there like don't yeah. don't dive in is the yeah. other one you yeah. know don't dive in don't dive in oh he's dived in and, and you can like there's nothing you can do he's going to dive in regardless <laughs> but as you say it really brings what the fans are thinking to light with a with a line like that um do, do you find that we'll move on quickly in a minute but do you you've obviously contact with some players at times are yeah. there any ones that particularly stood out to you that you thought oh he's really really good at it I mean, you know, sort of, you've done it with Malcolm Shotton or Steve Kinniber or any other sort of constable. Any yeah, ones I mean, that spring to mind? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I love Malcolm Shotton because every now and again he goes full on Malcolm Shotton from the eighties, doesn't he? <laughs> and he just says, "You want to get some by the scruff of the throat and pin him against the wall." And it's that he was a bit of a taskmaster, wasn't he, back yeah, in the day? You just, you just can't do that now, Mel. But he's, you know, he, he's mellow <laughs> somewhat. I think Stevie Kinniber um, gives some fascinating technical insights to the game. He really yeah, does because he, he picks things out that he, we don't see. He says it how it is, doesn't he, yeah. Mr. Kinnebrook? Yeah. yeah. Doesn't kind of mess around. I like that. But he does he does have that little bit of technical analysis in it too. And it's like, you know, people like, you know, we know that Steve Basham, James Cunthorpe, they're just good guys, articulate, who who also love the club. Um the, the flip side was I did a game at Bournemouth years and years ago, and it was for some reason I was on my own. Um maybe Drome was doing telly and Nick was obviously away at that time with the with the motorbikes. And for some reason no one else was free. So I did this game by myself. And it might have been Ian Atkins was in charge. He said, I'll send you a cu- I said, I'll, I'll send you a player out to help you. I'll send someone around. I said, okay. And we just started the game and round came two. I think it was Manny Omiyimni and, and Dean Whitehead. I'm sure it was those two. 
and the chemist sort of shuffled next to me. And I thought, are they, are they here to, to do this or not? Because they don't look like they want to be here to me. So I'm sort of chatting away and I've, I've got to do something, get you know, drink a water or something. So I said, oh, you know, uh, Manny, I mean, he's joined us in the commentary box, even to you. And he just sort of looked at me, I ain't doing it. I gave it to Dean White, he said two words and gave it back. And I thought, you know, I've got two people here to do one person's job and neither want to do it and neither are very good. <laughs> and obviously, Dean was only very, very young at the time. And Manny wasn't that confident at the best of times. So they were two that I wouldn't... I mean, we've used Dean Whitehead since, by the way, sort of 20 years later, yeah. he was absolutely, absolutely fine. But at that time, he was not going to be a, a, a summariser. Manny wasn't wasn't up for it. He was a erratic off the pitch as well as on it, wasn't he? <laughs> yes, he was. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't no he more. famously one of the ones where Nick struggles with his name? I suppose we all struggle with his name a little bit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's one that always <laughs> He was a struggle. There's been a few of those for all of us. Not just for Nick. I suppose um final one final one on, on commentary and we, we all sort of touch on COVID and the, the modern world we're in at the moment later on. But how, if it happens, how are you feeling about commentating behind closed doors? I mean, that is that a new experience? And crowd noise? Are you pro or, pro or against crowd I mean, noise? I mean, I mean, it's you, just ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, you can't manufacture that. I don't think. I mean, it would be a new experience if yeah. if I get to go. If we get to go, um, yeah. you know, there's questions and that well beyond anything I know, but whether we go to away games or whether we all go to away game, who, who knows? It's going to be very, very odd, I think, you know, commentating in a well, I suppose empty, just... empty stadium. They'll hear us and we'll hear them. Yeah, I mean, you won't get any of the kind of hearing the chance over the experience. And in some ways, you can let the crowd create the atmosphere and paint a picture, but you're just going to be hearing KR scream and, sh- scream and shout throughout the entire game, I imagine. Yeah, you can, there's not that moment where, you know... You, you get a goal or a big moment, and you can just relax and you just hold the mic away and let, let the noise seep through. And obviously, big goals at the, the stadium happen a lot. You'll say you scored and you might say a line, but more often than not, you just take a break and you let the you know the, the crowd noise come through. And you, you see it on, on social media. People say, oh, yeah, Yellow Army Sunday, great today. I'm listening in Barbados on a holiday, wherever it might be. I heard them coming through after the goal. And you think that's that's part of what the commentary is. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's the great thing about it. It's going to be, But it's going to be what it is. And if we can get back, behind closed doors and obviously we'll we'll do the best we can with it but the first thing as you say is, is is to get back maybe that'll be the only time where the players can actually hear what you're saying and then shout back at you that'd be quite <laughs> fun wouldn't pitch. it yeah right to reply yeah. fair enough well so we'll, we'll we'll touch on code a, a, a bit later on i think we wanted to move on to the um the pa announcer role which is um i suppose mm. one of those roles you think well what why she does it how do how much sort of how did that come about and what sort of how much shape do you influence do you get on it is it sort of your gig or is it kind of you a hired gun so to speak yeah pretty much it's 50 50 it came about i went my mum bless her organized some work experience i think she wrote to mick brown back at the manor and said look you want i want to be a, a um, written journalist at that point this is going back before the sort of the radio bug kicked in and he was like yeah come up to a game and see what goes on i went up with a guy called jim henderson who was the youngest PA announcer in the country uh, when he was doing it for United. He was on the old St. and Greavesy program, actually. There was a feature on him <laughs> being the youngest announcer. And I think he's younger than me, or I'm, it's very, very close. And actually, I've heard he's, he's not too well. And I know he's a big Ox fan. If he is listening, send the very best wishes to Jim because he's not too well at all, I don't think. But another lovely guy. And he showed me all around. And, you know, this is what we do. And bomb, bomb, bomb. Enjoyed it going in the press box. Then I got a call from Mick the season after. Which obviously, at this point, still season ticket. I was with my dad in Osler Road there. Mick Brown called up and said, look, we've got this big scoreboard going in, this new video war uh, behind the goal in Cuckoo Lane, and we want someone to come you know, to operate it. Would you be interested? 
was like, oh, yeah, nothing about these things, but of course, give it a go. And it ended up, Jim quite fancied it as well, having a go on it. So between us for that season, we swapped it around. Just literally, yeah. you know, I'll do the PA, you do the scoreboard sort of thing. So I ended up just sort of falling into it from that way. And then the war blew up in the end, I think. I think the five-all game against Peterborough almost <laughs> finished off. Then it got a bit wet. <laughs> and like everything else, you know, with United, it was a great idea, but didn't necessarily, you know, come out as it should have done. And we stopped using it. I went back to the um, terracing. And then at the start of one of the seasons, and it was the 92, 93, no, 93 season, 93, 94, I got a phone call from Mick saying, yeah, Jim's done the first game of the season, but he's going to leave the club now. He doesn't want to do it anymore. He's got some freelance reporting to do. Do you want the gig? And I was like, yeah, why not? And took it from there, really. It was great school. Great excuse, actually, one year to get out of a school trip. <laughs> 1994 A-levels. We went to a place called Glazebury. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this place. It's yeah, I remember. I went on a school trip there. You went there. It's hell on earth, isn't it? Swanwich. Yeah. yeah. Glazebury, Kilvaroo, those sort of places. They're just, yeah. they're not Kilvaroo, right. Kilvaroo, yeah. They're not, they're not right. Potholing and all that business. It just, it, I'd been before, hated it. Went back for my A-levels. And I said, we had Birmingham City at home on the Tuesday night. And I said, look, I've got to come back. The club need me. I, they didn't need me at all. I was trying to get this bloody school trip. I was like, you've got to come back. And I ended up going on, I think, the Sunday. And a teacher mom was coming back on the Tuesday because he had to have a meeting on the Wednesday. He said, well, I'll take you back. So it was perfect. I went for one day, one bit of orienteering, went to the pub that night, played a few games of pool, and then got a lift back the next night for the football against Birmingham City. I was like, yeah, this is more like it. So I was grateful for the job at that point, getting that school trip. You had any particular memorable announcements like, um, will, the guy, will the guy in the tree behind the cuckoo lane please get down or anything like that? There was the, um, the stay off the pitch after, was that the Wickham game? The, the chairman's bought your hot dog, so please, please stay off the pitch. That was when I just, <laughs> at the time, because we have, we have to do these announcements. Um, there's a the thing about how many times as a club you have to do certain announcements. So if there's a pitch invasion, you can say that the correct steps were taken. And so obviously, yeah. you know, there can be repercussions from these things. So you have to get a you know, point. Yes, we made announcements at this, this, and this point. And we'd already done three. And I knew full well this is not going to work. So I just tried to make it. As, you know, come on, stay off the pitch. The chairman's brought you a pie and a hot dog now, a, a pie and a hot dog at Carlisle. So please pay him back by staying off the pitch. I don't think it worked, but it's just one of those things you go, well, try it where we can. I did do a game at North Lee once as well, actually. This has come to me. I went to cover North Lee versus someone for, for Fox FM. And they said, oh, you do the PA. I said, yeah. said, oh, our guy's not here. Well, you do ours. <laughs> I said, okay, if you want. <laughs> so I got me in my car because I'm already parked. But he said, yeah, do that. So I did that. I went back at a half time. He said, oh, can you do this announcement? You get this bit of old, you know, as often, a bit of crumpled paper in your hand. And I went, yep, yeah, no problem. I said, can you only have a black uh, Nissan micro registration? It's me, but it was my bum. And at half time, I went, that's my car. So I had to actually stop at that point and go with my own vehicle, which is a bit embarrassing to uh, to announce your actual <laughs> own car. But that was um, that was my own fault entirely. But yeah, it's um, and in terms of you know the gig, it is very much. I mean, the club provided the information, the music, which is I'm, I'm sure is a massive discussion. That's pretty much now chosen. There's been times it's been down to me many years ago. Now it's pretty much told what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And I just I fill in the gap and be Rosie's sort of straight man. You let him do the the bits and pieces. I'm not really a fan of screaming PA and outs. I've done it once or twice with goals, but I don't think you want to be screaming before the kickoff and everything else. It's fine to go, come on, let's get around the lads and that. But, you know, Rosie's down there to have the the fun element and the, you know, to get people going. I'm there just literally do the safe announcements and, and the team using that kind of thing. 
which songs did um did you choose out of interest? Because yeah, we were going to ask ask you about this because there's been a few um, well, it's been a bit it's a bit of a sore spot for some fans because we've never really settled on a on an anthem like yeah, I've never many really other chosen clubs do. A, chosen a run out. I don't think it's mainly usually just the the stuff before. Uh, most I'm trying to think. Is there one that I've I think I'm up put Welcome to the Jungle on. That is a very good shout. Without being asked, we use that for a while. But you know, there's stories for all of them. I mean, the um, Kings of Leon track that was chosen by Chris Wilder, and it was literally on a match day. I was told we're going to play a night. Well, we haven't because we have a very small. We've only just got uh, a laptop or iPad in the PA box in the last sort of I think from the start of this season. One that works properly. For most of the 20 years at the Kassam, we've been using CDs which you've got to get from somewhere or you are, obviously I've got to burn in my own time and take them in. But sometimes the club deals with HMV in such places. But if someone goes, I want, you know, X song, it's easy now because obviously we've got Spotify and what have you. But it, before it was just not possible. And he ended up sending off on the YTS lads to, um, I think he had to go home to get his CD collection and bring us to Kings of Leon track he wanted to play one day. So. <laughs> that was just wild ago. I'm not happy with this. I want to change something. We're changing the run out music. This is what I want. And, you know, I've got no objection with that. But I think whatever United settle on, and some work and, and some don't. I think you've got to give it time. Yeah. My, my only thing is, I'm almost indifferent now. We've tried so many things recently, so many tracks, that I just think you've got to give it a full season and let people either grow into it or not grow into it. You can't chop and change every two or three months, which hasn't been quite so bad recently, but has been spells where it's felt like that. Because I don't think you can, you can't, manufacture atmospheres full stop I don't think you can try your best and obviously songs help and you can do bits and pieces but ultimately you know as fans you get to a game and sometimes you're already up for it and sometimes you're not so much and I guess the same with players as well and you can't just turn things on and I think you've got to let these things grow organically and at some point you know they're going to find something that works for them and it will take off but I mean, that's we're not, my opinion we're not all Charlie Methvin with his um, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I was, the was about to say that music <laughs> Um, where, where do you stand, Nathan, on the um, on the painful Banana Splits theme song era? Yeah, never liked it. I mean, it. that was... Yeah. I just remember Tommy Mooney, I might be getting my seasons wrong, I'm making this up, but Tommy Mooney was in the team and he'd come out with his bald head looking so pissed off he was going to nut someone. <laughs> and you'd had this Banana Splits la 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 yeah. <laughs> going on and just thinking, we're going to roll over here, aren't we? Because <laughs> this yeah. is about as intimidating as, you know, coming out in... Um, well, I honestly, honestly can't remember who, who chose that. I really can't remember playing and thinking, it's just a bit weird. But, yeah, uh, yes, it's not the um, not the proudest part of our um, of our history, is it? No, and I think, yeah, it's uh, one of the marks against the Kassam, I suppose, really. But, um, but no, it's, it's, it's interesting because I, I think, I doubt anyone anywhere really has the perfect song that absolutely works beyond, say, like Newcastle or Local Hero or... Or something like that. But if there's any, have you been anywhere where you thought actually that song works, or is it just the fact you can't, you know, you can't associate yourself, can you, to get into it? No, there's obviously just some grounds that just got great tradition, haven't they? That, that you know, you mentioned Newcastle, you've got places like Anfield with obviously you never walk alone. These yeah. things have all just grown, you know, from somewhere, and you you have to stick, you have to stick with these things. I don't, you can just only. Whether it's a custom, you see, to tell you, oh, you know, we've got a local band. There's some great Oxfordshire bands, but do any of those tracks necessarily jump out? I don't know. And again, just to pick, you know, the random tracks that we're going to play this for a few weeks. I think, you know, we had the Eye of the Tiger, didn't we? A little while when, when Tiger took over, and I think that was probably not the worst idea, just in terms of almost embedding him 
mm. into what the club mean. I remember putting it on. He came to one of the early games, not in this first game, and he was walking around long before the gates opened. We stuck it on and he looked up and he sort of smiled and he thumbs up. And I think you could see him already thinking, what's this going to be like when you play this? When there's people in here, there was that sort of realization that this is, you know, this is this is this massive football club now. He knew it was getting, but you know yourself to you actually get out there on on the match day and, and get involved. And he wants to be such a big part of the club, so that was probably at the time the right thing to do, but not the right track, I don't think, forever. And having just said you should give it a season away, <laughs> that's probably one when I would break that particular um my own uh, my own advice there. But I think that helped to embed him into the way of things on a match day. But I I and honestly. I, I don't know the. I wish I did. I wish I could come here and have this brilliant idea. I've got the perfect track for Oxford United. I haven't. I like the Perkle stuff, but I know why it's not necessarily the right song. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the lyrics on the Coldplay Yellow track are pretty good, but it's just too turgid. You can't. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's not a run-out track. That yeah. said, you want a track that builds sometimes as well. And it's not all necessarily about wham bang, loud music. You know, make as much noise as you can. It has to mean something too, doesn't it? it has to get that. Uh, what's the word that connection between supporters and club and music so it's not easy and there are a lot of clubs that, that don't get it right i'm sure no yeah absolutely so i mean turning to your final act of the match day if you haven't done enough already the uh the that's tunnel a bit ominous my final act what do you know that i don't <laughs> <laughs> well that's just a, a, a painful segue to try and talk about tunnel interviews <laughs> um which is obviously you know for you must is sort of a quite a big big key moment um yeah and how do they work? I mean, do you request to speak to specific players? I mean, you're obviously going to get the manager, but can you yeah. pick out particular players? And, and how have those interviews changed sort of over time? Um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of just good to talk about that a bit, really. Yeah, I mean, yes and no in terms of requesting. Yes, the manager, of course, is going to come out. We can, we do request often. And in the past, perhaps it's been easy to do that. And often the lower you are in the, in the pecking order of football, the easier it is to get players full stop and this is the the payoff between uh, success and and getting what you want sometimes you know in the conference pretty easy to get who you wanted the club never that concerned but also in terms of you know where you would be in the ground you can see just as you can be stood next to where they come out you can get a player you go up you know if you go to premier league game you've got mixed media zones you you wait there you, you get what you give you can grab the guy if you're lucky you can't always get the length of interview that we get and off kilt a little bit sorry to take you off at a tangent no. the level of coverage united get i think we all agree is fantastic you've got bbc for a long time you had jack as well before that there was fox doing interviews you've got a paper that's dedicated to getting a back page nearly every day to the club and obviously they've got interviews after match day a lot of clubs united size and even some in the championship don't get the airtime and column inches that oxford united get which can be both a blessing and a curse for the club and the fans i think as well sometimes um, but so in terms of, you know, getting those players, yes, you know, we can ask often now, they're pretty accommodating the club. Chris Williams, who obviously is the communication manager there, will, if he can get you to play, you want, he will. But in some cases, uh, home games, if someone scores a hat trick, that's also a curse for us because obviously you want to hear them, but they're man of the match pretty much at that point And they have duties with that to go and fulfill often before we can get them. So you end up not necessarily only getting them very, very quickly. Uh, sometimes players are doing drugs tests or they're having a, and this is a game sometimes talking about stuff you might know. You might be told, well, look, you know, so-and-so took a bit of a kick. Don't put it out. We're not sure okay. about you. You know, 
Tuesday might come too soon, but he's having a rub down now. He's having treatment now. So we're going to give you so-and-so instead. You know, fair enough. And then, of course, there's the moments where you get who you want. And sometimes you get you don't. And sometimes you get the ones you really don't because you know they're not going to be a good interview from the start. And um, what? <laughs> go on, James. <laughs> I was just going to say, what about when it's the one that comes to mind? It was that Curtis Nelson interview that you had to do. Yeah, that was good fun, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, to be honest, I think, you know, you, I was going to say, I mean, I've done, you talked about that, 900 odd games, let's say on average two games after, if not more. You're knocking on 2,000 interviews, you know, after, after games, I would think roughly as a figure. That's a lot of questions. Uh, that's a lot mm-hmm. of daft questions. I admit that absolutely. And sometimes you get, you know, you think that's a good interview. And I was really pleased that day with the Chris, with the Chris Wilder, with the Carl Robinson interview after that Plymouth yeah. game. Because it was one of those days when he came out and you knew whatever he asked, or whatever I asked, he was going to respond passionately and honestly and nothing was off limits. And sometimes you know before you start, I better not go there today. It's not the right time to go there. But with him, you just knew we were on a bad run. I could tell that he was in the in the mood to talk, you know? And I I was pleased that interview that day. He was he was really good. You maybe said too much, but it was one of those ones where you just what you knew you could keep going because this is this is good. And then we found out that Curtis Nelson was coming out. And um yeah, he came out and he didn't want to do the interview. But he didn't want to do it live. So I made it quite clear we're going to record it, we're going to play it out and he agreed to that. You know, and it was just one of those things and then I knew he wouldn't get Curtis Nelson again for a long time. He didn't do a lot of interviews. No. And almost, like I said about sometimes, you know it's not the time to go there. But the contract stuff had to be mentioned because I knew we were going to get him again on a Thursday or a Saturday. And I thought, this is this is the time to ask it. And, yeah. you know, he could have batted it off one way, which I expected an answer. And I'm guilty of this sometimes. You, you, you ask a question thinking you what you're going to get back, if that makes sense. But he didn't give up what I thought, as you know what it went like, and, and that was it. And it, it blew over, but I thought the whole thing didn't need to happen. Um, yeah. But that's an occasion where, as a, a club captain, you're in the firing line. Yeah. Rightly or wrongly, after a defeat like that away from home, you're going to go out and, and face the media. And I know it's hard of him with his former club everything else, but in the same way, you know, you expect John Massinho to come out if you get a bad beating somewhere or if it's Mackie that day, he's going to come out and, and talk to the press and, you know, do the best. It's, it is in this day and age, isn't it? It's just a massive part of the job. A footballer has to also talk to the press after a game and it has to be win, lose or draw. Fortunately, you can't sort of pick and choose. And I appreciate it was raw emotion. And I said before other things as well in people's lives, but it was a, it was an interesting, as much tricky, challenging is probably the word. And, almost unexpected the way he way he reacted but is what it is there've been plenty of them well I was going to say Carl, yeah yeah Carl doesn't um I guess any question you ask I was going to say Carl to I was like, who's that Carl then didn't I yeah. <laughs> who is that yeah <laughs> but I guess he's quite an emotive man mm. from like a fan's perspective and when you catch him just after a game there's I th- I remember recently. I forget what what game it was after, but there was still it was this season. It wasn't that long ago, but there were rumours circling around around the boards, you know, support and what what's the transfer budget going to look like on the back of January? You know, all the fun- there was unrest. Now, you know, we were talking um, on the pod just just gone about how the Baptiste and Fossu sales now look like genius moves, but 
it was obviously on the back of that where we were trying to work out what backing Carl was going to get. Mm. And I remember you asking some questions around that and unrest there, and he, he feels the need to answer. But do you, do you feel you have to take the rumours that are circling around and bring them to the players or the management just for the sake of the fans? Uh, some Yes and no. It depends what they are and, and how much is, is in them. And you know, the, the Fosu and Baptiste stuff, Baptiste have been kicking around for quite a while. It didn't just suddenly blow up you know, that day had been been around. And people want answers, don't they, in this day and age? We live in a, a society now where people want to know everything now. And if they don't know it now, they want to know why. And sometimes you, you, you don't want to ask certain questions. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I do. Sometimes it's it's ill-judged. It's Sometimes it's about just judging the moment, isn't it? And, and you say KR is, is pretty good at taking any question and he will answer it. And sometimes, perhaps too honestly, uh, he's also very good at talking into something else and you think, oh, where are we going to go now? And <laughs> where you thought you were going to go, you, you end up changing tack. Or you sometimes you miss stuff with Carl. And, you know, I know people listen and they go, well, like, why didn't Nathan ask him that off the back of that? And you can miss it because sometimes he's giving you so much and you're in, you think, I'm going to ask him this next. And they're in your ear saying, we've only got this amount of time, everyone else. And it is, you do miss stuff. And it sounds like an excuse. And I'm not trying to make excuses, but you do, especially with Carl missed bits and pieces sometimes only when you go back up you go oh, did he really say that and sometimes you might go back after it's finished and catch him again and record a piece for another day but it is it is a it's a balancing act and i think it must be frustrating to listen to sometimes the interviews i'm i'm sure they are and people will I, people do stop me so i go you know why do you ask that or why don't you ask this and nine times out of ten i think you know we try and get it right sometimes we'll know i'll quit with a jerome before i go down there might be something you know, he spotted that i've spotted him and ask him or vice versa and yeah, sometimes I might ask a question, perhaps I shouldn't. You try and sometimes hold stuff back. There are certain questions, and I think Jerome mentioned it last week in terms of when he's talking about the, the programmes. You know, he'll only say stuff that he can, he'd happily say to that person's face and you can justify. And I think that's the same with some of the interviews. And I've had people say to me, you know, after a game as I'm going down, tell him to resign. It's not always necessarily, you know, KR, it's lots of managers. <laughs> tell him to quit. Tell him to do this. Tell him he's crap. And I'm like, well, would you do that in a conversation? Because it is a conversation. And whilst it's part of his job, of course, you know, there is an element of respect and I think politeness. You can be polite to people. Never set out to be rude to someone in an interview. I don't think ever have been, I don't think, certainly not, you know, deliberately. But, and if you've lost two in a row and you say to him, are you going to resign? There's two things. One, he's not going to. Managers do not resign anymore. It's not the done thing because obviously the way contracts are, et cetera, you don't walk out of a job. Maybe mm, you did years yeah. ago. You don't now. So what's he going to say? No. We can do that. But what happens next week? If you lose two in a row or four in a row, at what point do you think now's the time to ask the future question? Because for me, it's not after every defeat. Because otherwise, by week three, if you've lost three in a row and you've asked each week, what's your future now? It's not a question, is it? You've asked, it's, it's a boring question. You, I think you have to hold that to when you know it's going to get the sort of answer that you're thinking about. It's not after one and two games. And that is, that's purely my opinion. People might say, no, you should ask it every week. But as it becomes, you know, a bit like, Jerome mentioned last Ashton for the five-minute forums as well. Get a lot of the same questions every week as well. Once you've asked it once, I think that's it for a couple of weeks. You don't go back unless you absolutely have to. But if people have missed it the first time around, they want it again and again and again. And I don't think you can keep asking it just because people have missed it. I suppose that's a big part of keeping the relationship with the club. It's not holding back. It's just being respectful and, and credible. And when they ask you to sort of hold something back, you you meet that. But then you they know when you've got to ask the tough question that, you're asking it for the right reasons and, and not to be that sort of 
sort of hatchet man every week just to try and trip them up. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it is about, I'd say for me, it's about just knowing when you use that sort of question. Otherwise, it, I don't think the interviews are worth it if you're asking it all the time. You know, and that said, I fully appreciate people want to hear certain questions after games and everything else. But it's, it's, look, it's, I say it's, just, it's not always easy down there. I mean, I really enjoy that part of it, but sometimes it's, it's not, it's not easy. And funnily enough, after victories, it can be quite, quite difficult. You know, you win a routine one, two nil game somewhere. It's not a great deal to talk about, is there? You've got two interviews plus the manager. You go around in circles sometimes. But in terms of the, you know, the big moments, I thought we got, I thought I got the Chris Wilder last game with um, Ian Lennigan. I quite enjoyed that. I thought that went really, really well. I look back now and go, yeah, that was all right. That was a decent interview. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to ask about that one because you mentioned you had a feeling it might be his last game. And there was kind of rumours that, you know, there was disagreements in the background. What was that whole situation like? Did you have to kind of run about trying to find out what was going on? Because I remember, I think it was Ian Lennigan said, I've been to his office and it appears he's resigned. So what what was that whole situation like? Do you know what? It was one of the most surreal uh, 25 minutes I've done in a tunnel. I've seen some interesting, I've seen scraps in tunnels and, you know, bits and pieces, but... This was just bizarre because ordinarily the doors are open to the tunnel. Um, on this occasion, one door got shut and for some reason one was left open so we could sort of see what was going on. And I think Chris Ward had gone out the back door, if you like, the front door. He'd seen Selfie in the car park and Selfie had sort of you know, said he's gone and he'd seen him in his car. So we sort of had a rough idea at that point that he, he wasn't going to be found, you know. And then we played, was it Torquay? Yeah, I think it was, yeah. Well, I think they were because Timmy Mallet suddenly appeared. First of all, we had Charlie Methin wandering around the, on the telephone. I think it was mum um, <laughs> behind myself and, and Dave from the Oxford and everybody else. We thought, oh, who's he on the phone to? Oh, it's his mum, so that's no good to us. And then, say, so looking down the corridor, see who's coming and going, and lots of board members would arrive and disappear into the office, and then people come and go. And then Mallet turned up. Timmy Mallet arrived because I think obviously he knew Chris Hargreaves, who was probably with Torquay at the time, and he went in there just to so play Mallet's Mallet as some sort of, you know, I don't know what's going on. It was just, you go, we stood here. Weird. We think Chris Wilder's resigned. We're trying to find the chairman. <laughs> Charlie Methon's talking to his mum. Team Mallet's playing Mallet's Mallet with Torquay. Can this get any weirder? And then, of course, Ian Lennigan came out and you know it, go, it goes from there. But that was a, that was a really just sort of surreal because it, it just became a bit of a nonsense, didn't it, the way it, the way it was handled. And, you know, walked under the bridge a lot since then. And I think everybody covered themselves in glory, particularly on that occasion. But, just in terms of being that's one of the things I remember always about covering Oxford United and there's some, you know, strange, bizarre moments, but that is, you know, Tunbridge Angels, top of a car and watching Terry Malik when you're looking for Chris Wilder, they're right up there, the sort of very, very weird experiences. <laughs> and who were some of the, the managers or players that you really liked interviewing and, interviewing and gave you the most honest sort of answers or, and equally, if you've got any more car crashes, we'd love to hear about them. <laughs> and managers wise, and Again, I want to harp on and say what Jerome said, but he's dead right that most of them have been, and certainly in my time, have been fantastic. I mean, obviously, Jenny Smith was the first manager that I would have interviewed properly. I did interview Brian Horton for a... I got a job writing for a magazine in Oxford. It was called Inspire or something. Some student publication was around for a little while when I was at school, and I organised interviewing Brian Horton. I went to his office at the manor, so I'd never been in that place before in terms of getting you know into Beach Road under the standing in the dressing rooms and he was good as gold he, he humored me i mean i asked some bloody stupid questions <laughs> asking about youth team players you, you know you should be playing up front and this it's almost what i would call the fan in me questions that actually you would ask if you 
didn't watch a trading session or you if you didn't sort of almost have more inside knowledge isn't the right question they were just sit they were silly questions that it was just the scoreboard fan in me asking daft questions but brian Hawke was great we just you know he, he um he gave me an hour of his time and, and he was perfect dennis smith although he could be crotchety and grumpy was just a very nice man there was never any hangover with him there was no sort of hard feelings afterwards david kemp was <laughs> just brilliant with the press we had a game at Wrexham on Tuesday night. It was slashing down with rain, and Nick and I were covering it. We went down to get the team news. And those days, we were recording it on a sort of like a tape recorder thing. We got back up to the uh, the commentary point to play the interview back to the studio to record it, and it hadn't worked. I said to Nick, oh, Jesus, we're on air, whatever minutes it was. And he said, well, go back and try. So I don't, he said, go and try. So we went back down again, and we spoke to the doorman at Wrexham. We said, can you just see if the Oxford manager's free? I told him who he was. All right. The next thing, Kemp comes out, and it's not that long, really, until not even until kickoff. He might have gone down again during the program, and he came back out again. So it's not Rick. I'm really sorry, David. He went, no problem at all. Do it again. That's fine. So we did interview, you know, and that was it. And we got hammered that night. And I can't think we spent more time with the players and less time talking to us. Slightly better that night, but he was just so, you know, so accommodating. Just a really, really nice guy. The Argentinians, Jerome mentioned, they were they were great. I mean, half the time, as he said, the the conversation happening in three or four different languages, but they were just friendly and gave whoever they could. Darren Patterson was a very nice bloke who actually apologised to me once after a, an interview. We'd had a Barrow first game with him in the conference. Oh, 3-0 Friday night, oh, yeah. Oh, no, it makes me shudder thinking about it. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have mentioned it. <laughs> we, I had an interview with him after the game. He got really spiky on the air about a player who I said something about, who, um, and didn't know he then next home game he called me in the office he said right quit word with you and i thought oh here we go this, this can't be good he says i just want to say sorry for the um what i said to you on air i said oh he said because that player in particular he's got an issue we're not convinced about him at the moment and his fitness and you know he's he's worried about it i'm worried about it and i couldn't and he said i agree what you said about how you play but i couldn't go out and snag him off because i don't want to damage his confidence any any more than it was already damaged. He said he's in the dressing room, he's in pieces. So I, I thought that was that was really good. He hadn't got to do that. He could yeah. have just carried on, but he took the time just to say, look, you know, actually what you said was dead right. But, and then obviously Mike Appleton, who was not standoffish, but again, I think as Jerome was describing, didn't want to necessarily be your mate, but he was very respectful. And I did a sit down with him not long after he joined and we actually put it out at the Christmas and it was a bad time because we were having that really bad run under him. Um, there was a bit of, you know, I got the, oh, you're only playing it, to, you know, to uh, make him sound good in front of the fans and you're doing a favour for the club. And it's hand on heart, none of that. I'd had the idea early in the season, said, why don't we do a sit down? Because Christmas, obviously, programmes are different. We've got some more time sometimes. Let's just get to know him. I met him in a coffee shop in Tame and chatted for an hour or so with him and he was just fantastic. He's a very interesting guy and he's, his view on football and what he wants to do in terms of director of football going forward and his philosophy and the way he had to study and the way his career ended, just walking off the pitch when he was playing for the reserves one night and just in his um, kit, getting his car and driving off and saying to himself, I can't play anymore. I've had it. And where he went after that. So he, he was a really, really interesting guy, but and good as gold to talk to. He could scare you with his eyes. I mean, Jesus, sometimes <laughs> yeah. look at you. And his arms. <laughs> oh, his arms, like four of me. We played at South End. <laughs> got beat there as we, as we usually do and I came out after the game and what did I say to him I said you must I said you, you must be angry Michael and he just stared at me 
And he said, you don't know. <laughs> thought, oh, Christ. He went, you don't know. And I went, oh, Christ. He went, you don't know. Went, oh, no. He went, how angry I am. And I've just told them. And I thought, okay, that, that's fine now. Okay, that's fine. He's, 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 he's the players. Because I thought for one second, I didn't know what I'd said. But I thought I thought it was a fairly you know straightforward question, but he um no, he, he he was fine. And obviously Chris Wilder was, you know we had um we had fun times with Chris Wilder. And I saw him the last thing I did at the Kassam Stadium was the um before the whole lockdown was the uh, reunion for the Wembley team for 2010. And he came all the way down from Sheffield that night, had interview before and on stage as well. I mean he was absolutely good as gold, and you know he was really pleased to come back to the football club at that point. But obviously there were times with him when I had a few, you know, set twos, but he could be a bit like KR, heart on his sleeve, Chris Wilder, and often not the best time to catch him after a game. And we had a few sort of set twos where he didn't like a question or, you know, maybe I phrased it badly and it's often as much my fault as anybody else's. But we had a few high profile ones, probably more with Chris Wilder than anybody else. You hosted that um, reunion yeah. thing, didn't you? Yeah. Was that fun? Yeah, it was really nice. It's a shame that most of the players you promised to come didn't come in the end. And I know it came just before lockdown, but I got the impression that one or two, you know, let the club down a little bit. Not let them down, but, you know, promised to come and then and then didn't. But those that did come, I think, really enjoyed getting back. And, you know, it's just a great day, wasn't it, to to relive and to and to go through the memories and to get their insight into into what it was like to be part of the club at that particular time. And there's nice little stories that, that come out that I've not heard before. And just, uh, nice. yeah, good to get them back together, the, the, those that did make it. We were um, sort of coming back to the kind of how weird things can, can happen at the club and things work out and some things don't. We wanted to, we didn't get a chance to talk to Jerome about this much. We wanted to ask you about sort of transfers and club announcements. And do you kind of, as BBC Oxford, do you get a, a tip off that something's happening and, you know, come down and interview this player? Or how does sort of transfers tend to work when it comes to interviews? Or do you just get a few minutes before the game or... Yeah, I mean, you know, without um, being on Arsene Wenger saying I didn't see it, I'm not always the best person because not being a full-time employee, true, I'm, true. I'm not around in the week. But I'm going to do know, since when I was at Fox, and this is obviously going about a long, long time and things are different now and there's a lot more handling sometimes of stories because obviously you've got the club social media and website now. In those days, that didn't exist. And there'd be a lot more digging around. You'd get, you know, you'd know somebody's ring up and go, right, this is happening. And again, that was the whole fan reporter theme because at that age, especially sort of, you know, 16, 17, 18, you're hearing stuff and your mates are all Oxford fans and you go out and they, what do you know? And you go, Shit, I know some stuff, but I re- really can't, can't say. And I think that quite early on that helped me as well. Finding that level, that boundary. Cause I didn't, I didn't want to be the person that, you know, leaked that story. Everyone else does. That's fine. But you know, I'm quite new to this game. I'm not that old at this point. I'm enjoying working and I don't want to be the one that, you know, does something silly. And there was that rumor and it came out, but at one point there was this whole thing about United having a relationship with Juventus. I don't know if anyone remembers that. Yeah. Back in the, that 97. I remember being told that because Mickey Anotta, who was the sports guy at Fox FM, was uh, a real character, is the best way of putting it. Lovely, lovely bloke. He used to pay me out of his own pocket to help him in bits and pieces. And he, he, was, he gave me a lot of uh, chances, a lot of experience um, that didn't need to give me either. There wasn't a role at, at Fox, but he sort of made this role for me to help him with. And I'm forever grateful for that to Mickey. And he's, he's a lovely guy. But he he was very in with Robin Hurd, who was the chairman. And he got this information through, you know, this was going to happen. And he sort of, I was there when it happened. He was saying, you can't tell anybody. And we were sort of sitting on the stool. And it did come out in him when the National Papers ran it. And it ended, of course, being a non-starter in the end. But that was one where, you know, you get the tip off. And I think Jerome told you the story with Chris Turner. Everyone thought he was with the Oxford manager. And Jerome got a call from somebody close situation. It's going to be Ramon Diaz. 
you know and so you do get the uh, little tip off sometimes. Same with the Chris Wilder thing. You know, there were little. There were sometimes you hear bits and pieces, and we knew about Chris Wilder being the Oxford manager from somebody else who knew him through somebody else. Happened to be at a game one day, and we sort of, you, you, you know, about this guy. Not, not really. No, oh, you know, you, you might want to find out a bit about him, that sort of thing. So you do get these tip offs, and of course, then in this day and age with the managing the stories, there may well be, you know, the player is going to be here at a certain time to do the interviews and to speak to you all and get your photographs and then it will go out you know the club website at this time what time are you going to do it sort of thing so there has to be a, a degree of management at this level it's where you work so close with the club of course and same with the, you know the, the national ones the, the big premier league sides i'll have the, the press in his press conferences on you signing so it's it's less likely now i think to get the uh the real heads up a long way in advance and of course breaking stories is a lot harder these days as well are there any that you've been particularly excited about sort of in the beforehand, any players or that have come in and you've thought, that's really exciting, can't wait to talk about that and kind of get it out there? Do you know, the one that still haunts me to this day was was Peter Fear. Because <laughs> I, remember, I remember saying that is going to be a brilliant signing because he was a very good footballer, Peter Fear. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I remember saying, you know, before it happened, and then got on the radio as well. And it's a daft thing to say. Well, not I say a lot of daft things, as you know. You know, this is this, Peter Fear and Paul Tate as a midfield partnership and be brilliant for Oxford United, I said. And they were awful, weren't they? I said exactly I mean, the I said exactly the same, good. Nathan. So you, you, I'm standing with you. Yeah. yeah. Tell me, I said on the radio, that. you can say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. But yeah, Fear especially had all the talent in the world, didn't he? And just it just didn't work out for him again for whatever reason. It's one of those ones which just doesn't work out for a player, and that was a a high profile case of, of not working out, wasn't it? I mean, I think yeah. I mean, that was a season certainly when here when heads were dropping, and we were really sort of. In, in kind of a decline, really. I mean, we wanted to sort of, and we've touched on it a bit already, so we don't need to go over the eras too much, but we're just wondering about sort of periods throughout the kind of time you've been commentating that mm. you've kind of really stood out to you or any moments that you particularly loved commentating on. So, I don't, you know, it's maybe the sort of some of the Swindon games or any sort of times where you've thought, this is just, these are my favourite times or particular times that come back to you. Yeah, I mean, being on the bench at Wembley in 2010 was... Um... A horrible experience and a great experience because just to be be there and that final whistle and hop over the barrier and be almost in amongst the celebrations as a, as a fan and a reporter was, was fantastic. The actual game itself was horrible because I was just sat there worried. <laughs> but yeah. I was for a different reason. I managed to almost detach myself from the situation completely because all I was worried about was we had this new kit and I was sat behind the bench. So the idea was if Nick and Jerome, if there was an incident and Rosie, if they, it, it required something from pitch side, they were going to come down to me. And of course, the game itself had none of that really, did it? There was nothing particularly that needed to be, there was no like horrendous challenge or you know, set to on the on the touchline. But I was just sat there, sort of just almost hands over my headphones to make sure I could hear because I didn't want to be the person on that day on our coverage that, that cocked it up. So I almost detached from what's happening on the pitch even. I'm sort of watching it, but also my role is to see what's happening here and watch the fourth official thing that might be going on there. So that part of it was horrible. Yeah, the emotion on, on, on full time was 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 just unbelievable. Commentary-wise, we've touched on the Rushton games, of course, the Wickham game. For me, though, the one that stands out, and I sound like a bit of a miserable eagle when I say this, was the, the defeat at Rushton, that 5-1, five, 5-0 five, uh, under Jim Smith, because I don't think I've ever felt so low commentating in my life. And I think I said on the air, you've sometimes got to experience paraphrase this you know the absolute lows to ever enjoy football again because at that stage honestly i just felt this is this has just gone beyond any kind of fun 
it's, yeah. I couldn't see. And I had David Oldfield as my summarise. It was only me and him that night. And David Oldfield summarised. I think the game was on TV and Drummer's back in the, in the studio, I think. And David Oldfield is the most positive guy. He's at the Mickey Lewis on the positive scales. You know, he can find <laughs> everything can, he can make all right. And he's also a very, very articulate, knowledgeable guy. He's a good summariser and good company. I remember turning to him and his face and even what he said. And I just, in my head, I didn't sit on the radio, but my head was telling me, if David Oldfield can't find something positive in this now and any sort of light into the tunnel, then I don't know who's going to at this stage. And that was just, that was probably the lowest commentary. There was the Droyles in game and all that business. And obviously Tunbridge was different. And it, not even so much, you know, yes, we got beat five, but just that moment of just thinking, I can't see a way out of this anymore. And of course, it wasn't that long after that, that Chris Wilder comes in and, you know, things turn over the next couple of seasons. But that was, for me, I remember that as a commentary, that the sick feeling in my stomach. And there were great moments, great moments that should probably be ahead of that. But for some reason, back in my, I always hold that as the moment that, you know, remember that because that's the lowest you know, remember you, that as yeah. that's what it could be like again. Enjoy everything else because you never want to go there again. Do, do you find it? I mean, what's how do you feel covering? I mean, sort of an extension of what you've kind of been talking about. But when things aren't going well, how how does your focus change in terms of commentary? Because I mean, for example, if things are going well, I guess you can feed off the positivity and, yeah. and the joy. But when you know the seasons we've gone down in, in two thousand or that sort of year in the doldrums, kind of years in the old sort of post Atkins, the sort of Rick's Tolbert, well, we weren't really going anywhere. How is it to sort of kind of bring you, get yourself up to commentate and sort of be realistic and not be that fan that's a bit demoralised? Yeah, it's tough sometimes. And sometimes you go to games that, you know, there, there might be a Swindon game or a cup game in the middle of all of it and they take care of themselves, don't they? But it, it, some games you do go, it's like it's like commentating on a pre-season game sometimes. It might be a, a smaller crowd. It might, you know, it, they they can be hard to to get yourself up for, but you, you know, there's obviously part of that comes across sometimes. I think you know you you have to be honest if, if, the, if the game's flat as well. But there's a, I think sometimes once you get going as well and, and the game's underway, you do you find something in you that you try. And people always say to us, it always sounds more exciting. You make the game sound more exciting. I, that's not intentional, but you know sometimes there's a different vantage point. And I've said this before, somebody that where we watch a game is very different to where you'll watch a game as a fan very few places do we sit in the same place as where the Oxford fans are very seldom and if it is we're higher or different and you know yourself if you watch a game on TV at the Kassam to where you sit you see a different game because different angles and it's just what you see and we don't ever you know set out and go we must make this game sound exciting because it's crap today or because it's going to be a poor game you just I think you get involved in the commentary and you, and you, you sort of run with it from there but there they are sometimes they're hard and so I suppose if you had to Thinking about the positive moments, thinking about commentating on a Swindon victory must be must be right up there, even with some of the great cup FA Cup games, for example, oh. we've had. What what would you be a standout in terms of the Swindon wins? Any ones where so that must be painful and amazing to commentate at the same time. I haven't commentated on many Swindon games because Nick has been around <laughs> most of them. I, t- I did do the terrible defeat when Guy Whittingham. I did. I commented on Guy Whittingham's only goal for Oxford United, I think. That's, oh, that's yeah. Claim to fame. I did do the JPT. I was on commentary for the JPT game when Alfred Potter scored late on. But, I mean, I've obviously been at them and getting on the pitch at the county ground on the full-time whistle, hopping between the stewards. I've got a habit sometimes of being where I shouldn't be, which isn't always a bad thing for, the, for getting Absolutely. interviews. But, you know, Absolutely. It can lead to problems and has done at Wembley. Um, but you're yeah, getting on there, interviewing Chris Ward and then James Constable. 
you know, Bino in front of the Oxford fans singing his name and you talk to him at the same time. That was a, a really special moment and made more special by the fact I'd been abused for about 60 minutes uh, by Swindon fans. I'd taken the daft decision to wear the BBC Oxford. We have these sweaters that we wear, the, the fleeces with the name of the station on. It does help, you know, getting places sometimes. You've got the branding on. And I yeah. took the daft decision to wear it this day. I don't know why I did that, but I did. And the commentary box at Swindon, I think Jerome told you, is a terrible little place. And I couldn't really get in there with Nick and Jerome as well. And it was all a bit crowded. And I said, look, I'm going to go out, try and get down close. When it happens, I can obviously, you know, do some stuff that way as well. So I'll try and get out and about around the ground. This bloke saw me and that was it. Obviously, I was amongst Swindon fans anyway, but he just gave me all the way through it, all the names under the sun and everything else. And I was just trying not to celebrate. And I'm trying to say, no, I'm not really an Oxford fan, mate. You know, I'm just, I'm an employee. I'm not an Oxford fan, you know, bomb, bomb, bomb. And then at the end, I just couldn't have a smile. Just think of me, no, but yeah, he, he was, um, he was an interesting fan. Yeah. That soft little smile. Yeah. Not that sort of over, oh, over the top. I was going to say, I probably would have given him more than a smile. Yeah. yeah. And I'd cleared the fence, by the way, for the smile. I was not going to give it to him <laughs> in close proximity. Well, yeah, um, but fantastic those those days. And, you know, great interviews too. I remember the other day, I was thinking about, you know, interviews, and I thought perhaps we might talk about them. The ones that give you a lot of pleasure, the best ones. And the Beano one on the pitch, of course, and all the stuff at the Wembley. But, do you know, Aidan Horton at Tranmere, he, he, it was his only game for Oxford United and he damn near scored as well. And a lot of fans remember him more for the Swindon game as yeah. the ball boy. With, with, yeah, with Richard, I yes. that, yeah. But, you know, he'd had some terrible luck with injuries. I mean, obviously he's a great lad already from the whole Swindon thing. He'd had some terrible luck with injuries and he got on, his parents were there and I spoke to him and it was just, it makes me, I get sort of goosebumpy now. It just, he was, it was such a nice moment. He was so thrilled. That's his, he's played for, he, you know, he's doing what we want to do for a start. He's played for Oxford United and he can't take it away from it. It was his only game. We didn't know at that point what would happen the rest of his career, but he was, he was so humble and so excited. And it was just, it was just a really nice moment. You hear a lot of interviews where, aren't always nice interviews or you do bad interviews, but sometimes you come away and you go, that was just a brilliant interview for all the right reasons. And he was just so proud and it came across the way he spoke. He's only a young guy as well. Brilliant interview. Really love that one. That's, I thought a similar thing with the young lad this season. What's his name? Ty, Tyler Goodrum. Tyler Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Goodrum, yeah. Oh, wasn't he fantastic? Yeah. And he, he interviewed really well. It was great. And he sounded so much older than he is as well, in many ways. You know, he, was, he wasn't afraid to sort of say what he felt was. And, you, you know, you, you'd find over the course of the seasons, you were talking about, you know, who do you go to? You have go-to people sometimes, especially after defeats. In my early for me, it was like Les Robinson, Mike Ford, great sure. talkers, Matty Elliott, David Smith. I know it wasn't everyone's favourite player, but he was brilliant. Smudge. Oh, Smudge, after defeat, he'd just tell you, yeah, we weren't good enough. And he, you know, players, by and large, more and more narrow, a bit more guarded, I think, than they were. That 90 team, especially, Mickey Lewis was another one. You go to Mickey Lewis, win, lose, or draw, and he'd tell you exactly as it was. Chris Hargreaves, a bit later on, was good for that. Yeah. Uh, Steve Basham was, was always articulate. Him on the pitch after the late in Orient game was, I mean, he was nearly in tears, and so was I. It meant a lot to Steve Basham. Obviously, it meant a lot to everyone following Oxford, but in terms of a player, you know, he got Oxford United, didn't he, Bash? And he was Yeah, definitely. Just talking to him on the pitch, he was gutted. Now, of course, John Massinio, Jane Mackey, those sort of people you, you try and go to in, in your time of need. But yeah, they were the sort of people you, you, you try and pick out when you need them. Are there any players you ever, you've never got to interview that you wish you'd had? Well, that, or managers? Mean, well, I suppose not managers, but... Not managers. Um, 
players, I don't know about Wish, but the funny one I was thinking the other day about this was having done all those games and all those interviews, I never spoke to Aaron Martin. For all the oh, time okay. he, he was there, I mean, he was there what, a couple of seasons. You'd think he would be one. I spent the players who played one game, two games, you know, half a game. But <laughs> all the time he was there, because he played, and was probably never a man in the match, so he never, we never scored a goal, so you, you don't get him afterwards. And I wasn't there for the Thursday. He did do some Thursday press conferences, but it's one of those sort of strange anomalies of all the players that have played during that time, all the games I've been to, probably interviewed most of them, but but he um, he was never on it. Yeah, he was definitely one of those players you put in the box of didn't work out for whatever reason, ticked all the boxes yeah. in terms of history and whatever. It just didn't didn't really work out. I mean, looking to this season, have you got... I mean, it almost feels weird to be talking about this season, but the standout moments for this season you've you've particularly enjoyed? Funny enough, it's that last game, isn't yeah. it? It's the last one you think about still, that, that Shrewsbury yeah, yeah. game and George yeah, Ruffles. And again, talk about angles of where you view a game from. Just sat in the... Um, what did Chris Wilder call the conference? Poxy. The poxy press box. <laughs> it's all right. It's just very, very tight. It's the sort of place that you crane Nick into at the start of the game and he can't get out because it's it's very, very tight and there's obviously kit everywhere and leads dangling. So once you're in, you're in. But we had, when that free kit was clipped in, we you could just see from where we were, that's going to curl cool around. There's Josh Ruffles at the back post and Jerome's on commentary and got it perfectly as always. Yeah. But that's one this season. It, at that point, you on we're on a crest. Are you thinking we're going to do it? Aren't you? At that point, really thought this is this is going to have such a strong end of the season. This team just doesn't know when it's beaten. It's got resolve. It's got a little bit about it. Obviously, now any sort of momentum has gone, hasn't it? For, for not just for Oxford, yeah. for any team, depending on what happens, but that that has probably that little bit of momentum will have gone. But that was just a great moment this season. I think it's a point. It's a well point well made about momentum. I think. Wherever we end up with this season, that sort of loss of momentum before it, we were really building up quite ahead of steam. I mean, do you have any sort of personal views or, or sort of general feeling about where we're going to end up this season? It feels almost like it's um, slipping away from us in a way from current news today and things like that. Yeah, we did the pod, the, not pocket, the, the, um, the piece of drum, didn't we, a couple of weeks back? Um, on the Saturday afternoon talking about this and I think I said then under all circumstances we must finish the season that was and that was very much my view and in many ways it still is but it's becoming harder and harder isn't it to see how you're going to do that um, I've still got part of me that thinks this should be done and you have to adjust next season accordingly but of course with football like it is and sponsorship deals you can't just scrap the football league trophy for example it's got a sponsor it's been paid for I think so but do you play those as, as pre-season, mini pre-season tournament to get that out of the way perhaps and only play a round or two next year and try and condense it that way? Do you have to sacrifice the Premier League teams and the League Cup for a season? I don't know. I would like to see this season played out to its conclusion just for all the reasons I think James Constable said about that. You know, players have got goals on their, their records, haven't they? Players have worked blimmin' hard and yes, as fans and as reporters, we want to enjoy football and go, but what about the players? They've given so much, haven't they, this season to Carl Robinson and to Oxford United and, and to the football club and we're talking about that Late Josh Ruffles goal, their momentum, heart. They've, they've done so much to have that taken away and just said, yeah, all you've done, no, that's been written off completely. Like Bino's three goals against Chester. No, it doesn't count. It's gone. The season's void. That would be, I think, yeah. incredibly tough on professional yeah. people. I think when I when I um, spoke to John Massinio last week, he said something very similar to me about how the the lads are just so keen to get back playing football even after this what well, i think it's been like five five weeks i think when i last spoke to him um and i agree with you completely that i think it, it mentally affects players 
an awful lot when they're not being able to perform their roles. Um, and clearly we've seen um, various news articles that have come out about the, the rise in mental health issues amongst football players. And I think obviously mm. that it plays into the fact that they're just not completing you know, their routines. Routine, you know, football players are creatures, creatures of habit and they're completely pushed out of that, yeah. as are a lot of us in other ways, um, obviously. But as I say, I think the, for the players themselves, yes, I think it would be devastating for it to be voided, to be honest. I, I, I would feel for them if that does happen. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's not just them, though. It's the, it's course, the fans, yeah. though, as well, isn't it? It's like all of us who were yeah. at that Lincoln game, for that to be yeah. taken away, like, I just... And even yeah. Southend. We did the double yeah. over bloody think, Southend. The only thing is with that, James, is, is like, yes, uh, it might be taken away in terms of the points, but the memories will never be taken away. And that's one thing you got. You know, you can hold on to because they, we've had some really, really good moments this year, regardless of what happens. I mean, like, like we just mentioned there, that Josh Ruffles goal. I mean, okay, I watched it from my bedroom in Belfast, but I went absolutely berserk when that hit the net. And those little memories will will always will always be I know, there. I know, but you... so you know, I'm I'm a firm believer in that. Is that enough for players? I don't. Though, I, th- I think I think for players it's a different story. No, yeah, sure. I agree. Yeah, I think for players it's a very different story. It's... But it's as a fan though, all of that. The reason you're celebrating, so I don't want to, you know, I'm not you, am I? But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the reason, it's the reason, all of those results yeah. mean so much, and that. That one nil result yeah. at Portman Road is because yeah. it's leading up to something. Like, and it's if you take away the thing it's leading up to, it's just like, what is, you know? I just to your point, Nathan. I know there's a load of financial stuff involved in it, but it's like, please just prioritize finishing the season in some capacity, um, rather than trying to worry about the next one. But unfortunately, I think the money. Yeah, I mean, I think. Of it all, but. Yeah, I think first and foremost, health and well-being yeah. and that sort of thing must come first. I mean, this this is why I think I, I worry yeah. at the moment about. Um, the sort of rhetoric around the, the Premier League returning because I do think that they might be overstepping the mark at the moment, I think, with how they want to get it back so quickly. Um, because, again, it will then... It trickles down to the lower leagues. You know, if the Premier League are back, why aren't the lower leagues back? Um, but, again, I, I just think, yeah, health and well-being has to come first and then we can start talking about where sport can fit into that. Yeah. It's funny yeah. you said about structure. I was saying before, for me, working from home just doing the similar sort of hours, you know, and it, it does make a massive difference. If I was sat on my backside, obviously I've got my daughter to worry about in homeschooling, but I think very just even say to her, right, knock off the today, we'll do something else. But because I am still working at the moment, thankfully, it, it makes a massive difference. And I can see how when something's taken away from you that you do, you know, that in some cases, say not all footballers love football, but it's still their job. Yeah. You take it away and you just can't do that. And of course, not anyone's out of work right now. And people say, well, they get paid big bucks, but, Go back to what I said at the start of the show. Exactly. All the money in the world doesn't make yeah. you happy necessarily. Yeah, definitely agree. No, I think as well in the model that we kind of in as a club now, in that we have quite high t- player turnover. This team will probably, if we don't finish this season, will probably kind of get broken up in some form, and um, they as a group won't get to achieve what they what they want. But I think it, yeah, it's, it just seems to be on a sort of a bit of a knife edge at the moment. Um, should we do some uh, quick fires? Because um, as ever, and Jerome yeah. pointed out, we've um, been our concise and usual self, but there's been so much. I mean, honestly, Nathan, we could talk to you about the interviews you've, you've done for, for, for hours yeah. on end, but um, you might have you've got to work tomorrow. Um, so you ready for a few quick fires? Oh, go on then. I'll talk too much for quick fire, but go on, I'll try. Well, <laughs> so we've um, we had a few from Jerome last time, but um, 
worst or demo- or most demoralizing games you've covered? Uh, yeah, easy. The uh, defeat at Russian I was talking about. Yeah, that one. Yeah, definitely. Thought that one might come in. Um, worst places to commentate at? Yeah, uh, again, Northampton <laughs> and Southend are right up there. They were horrendous. And the early days at Boston, we were behind the goal. Horrendous. <laughs> Boston. I'm just going to Boston, God. by the way. Full stop. Horrendous. <laughs> yeah. Our um, our research department dug dug up a picture of you and Nick climbing a ladder at Exeter. Is that the norm? Uh, that, would be. that be up there as well? Uh, it can be. Um, that wasn't too bad actually. That was that wasn't too high. Uh, there's one at Sheffield United that's really quite scary, but in, that's not. They're not bags when you're up there. Actually, the one at Exeter was a brilliant view. Yeah, Nick and I could see brilliantly for the first time in about ten seasons. It was it was superb. Uh, but no, in terms of actual working conditions, when we've talked about, they are very, very, very difficult. And I had a bit of a Barney at a club in the north once that we, we probably haven't got time to talk about. So whilst it's not a, the worst place to work, they made it very, very hard for us. And it's the closest I've come to being involved in an altercation with somebody else in a press box. You know, <laughs> well, there's always time for a bit of a... I mean, what what are the... I mean, suppose, what, what are the best grounds for that sort of all round how they treat you and look after you as a sort of match day experience. Um, I mean, best catering, where's the best pie? Uh, currently best looked after and the best is, is MK Dons. I know people think it's a soulless hovel, <laughs> but I actually quite enjoy going there for, in terms of it's well appointed. There's a very nice press room. You get a very nice burger or sausage roll. That's always very, very, very agreeable. That's yeah. Yeah, that's right up there. And I'll tell you who, who were brilliant in terms of the hospitality. I don't know if I think Joe mentioned this was Newcastle. And you'll say, well, they're Premier League club, they should be, but of course, there we are rocking up, breaking all their rules. I talked about, you know, where we do interviews and stuff and getting to where I shouldn't be. They had a rule of no interviews on the pitch side, all inside in the in the press room, which we can't do because our kit doesn't travel through walls. We needed like a direct line of sight from, ideally, from where Jerome and Nick are to where I am. We said, can we go on the pitch? Yeah, of course you can. No problem at all. And they, those little things actually didn't need to do that. And I've been to some grounds, not going to mention you, Plymouth, where we've had um, <laughs> uh, blaze, blazing rows with people on the pitch because they're moving. And I'm saying, I'm just doing my job. I'm not in anybody's way. We're not breaking any rules. And, you know, it gets silly. But that's not very we, quick far, is it? Sorry. <laughs> no, no. We, we have, as fans in the state and in the oh, terraces, yeah. we have challenges with stewards. We, who, we have on a We were trying to take a picture with about... Yeah. 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 And you just we wanted to move to... Literally a section of seats where all the flags were to take a picture during half time. Wouldn't let us, wouldn't let us. And then somebody came over and said, yeah, of course you can. Don't, don't be silly. And it's just, as you say, these are small touches that endear you to the grounds. Um, yeah. Right, final, final two then. Um, top, so this is a radio feature that, that Jack's done already. Um, top four or five Oxford players of your your favourites? Yeah, Jim Jilton was my my first, obviously mentioned Dean Saunders, but in terms of players, I thought as I got older, just Jim Jilton up there. Matty Elliott, and then yeah. it's close between Dean Saunders and, and probably Joey Beecham. I'll just put Joey in, I think, because Joey in his day was was just unplayable and I've seen him play so many great games for Oxford United. So I think those three, there are obviously loads, but I'll go with those three. Have, have you listened to the Jim Magilton pod it, with Mickey Lewis it, as well? It's on my list of things to catch. I gather it's very good, isn't it? It's on oh, my list. It's incredible. I, I've never heard um, Jim Magilton speak really. He's great, um, isn't he? And he was just, he was just absolutely brilliant. Yeah. He played at Les Robinson's. Um, sorry, Les Robinson's dinner. Um, I went along to that. I think I hosted that with Jerome as well. And Jim was there. And just got chatting in the bar afterwards, and I was going to have an early night. And about four o'clock in the morning, I said, Jim, I was going to be early night. And he's like, no, no, you're fine. He was flying out next day to Belarus somewhere with the Northern Ireland uh, team yeah. he's involved with. And he was, you know, he had a couple of sherbets for that point. I saw him next morning. 
He was right I, as rain. I, I'm really hoping that one day I'm going to bump into Jim Majorton because <laughs> obviously he lives in Belfast. So he's he's um, yeah. he once tweeted actually a, a couple of months back saying he'd spotted someone in, in the city centre with an Oxford shirt on and it wasn't me. So I'd love to know there's obviously another Oxford fan somewhere in Belfast. So I'm hoping that I bump into Jim one day. They're, yeah, they're we everywhere. are everywhere. Yeah, he's he is a lovely guy as well. He, he'll talk for you know for ages, asking about football in Oxford, and Oxford, and off he goes. Okay, well, uh, whilst Connor plans his um, further stalking <laughs> activities beyond Mark's sites in Belfast, final quick fire is, is similar. So, top, top three managers, um, excluding our current KR, excluding uh, with Dennis Smith, then I think yeah. Ramon Diaz and Michael Appleton. Yeah. Ramon Diaz is definitely getting a lot of uh, lot of love. And, um, it, was, it was just amazing to, to be part of. I can't say I know him very well, but he was just the nicest. And his backroom staff. And if you want very, very quick, you got a very quick story on that? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah we... I mean, you ask, you ask all the players about Diaz, they all loved him because he was bringing in stuff that was, you know, uh, not ahead of its time, but wasn't being done at that level in English football. But the entourage that Jerome talked about, they're everywhere. Loads of them. And you see different people and you slowly start to learn the names and what they did. And there was yes, one little guy. Who um, went off, and this is going back to Boston. Went on a scouting trip to Boston on a Tuesday night. We never saw him again. <laughs> I swear he got lost and just gave up and, and downed tools because we never saw him again. It's just it was brilliant. He's a lovely little guy as well. No English again, but off he went in his little car to Boston. And that was it. Did he go to America or try to go to America or something? <laughs> I don't know where he went. You search him online, I just can't find him. So who knows where he <laughs> Brilliant. Well, um, I think, I mean, I think we we say we're, we're trying to be concise, and I think we'd just love to carry on talking for, for an ever and, and ever. But I'm Nathan, sorry, it's probably my fault. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's probably my fault. No, for it's, I'm sorry. It's, it's our pleasure for having for you on, and and it, again, I think from all of us, we just thank you so much for everything you do and the passion you show. And um, we can't wait to hear you commentating again. I think is yeah, is where we all definitely. want to be. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's um, nostalgic for people listening in any way, being able to hear like your and Jerome's voice and then hopefully soon nick as well so yeah it does. gives us that hey, as well if you, think we talk, you wait till you wind nick up give yourself plenty of time that night, nick's got <laughs> we'll have a four-hour special or a, or a two-part series with him yeah just yeah. do that nick harris files yeah no, i think we can easily sort of get away with them people expecting that well um well again thank you nathan and um yeah look forward to um football returning when it's um when it can do Absolute pleasure and keep up the good work, guys. Thank you very much indeed. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks,